Hi, it's Bob from Royal Spa. Soaking in a hot tub full of Epsom salts is the absolute best way to minimize everyday aches and pains. And we know all about Epsom salts at Royal Spa. Royal Spa hot tubs are the only hot tubs on the market that can safely and effectively use Epsom salts. Made right here in Indiana, Royal Spa hot tubs are the highest quality hot tubs on the market. Visit any one of our three Indianapolis locations or visit royalspa.com. Ah, Royal Spa. Oh, I'm loving it. You know, um, day in, day out, you know, I'm studying it, looking at it, asking questions every day, just trying to uh, get advantages, you know, because defenses, I know they're going to prepare for our offense. So I'm just trying to make sure I can do it the best way I can. And when the time does come, you know, we're beating them because they can't stop us. You know, I'll be uh, getting with the receivers, you know, getting with Gardner, trying to get in the building here so I can, you know, just constantly learn information and just build chemistry because the season's right around the corner. You know, it's coming up fast. So I was just trying to just get better, master my craft, get in the playbook a lot more, and get chemistry with the receivers a lot more as well. No, I think it's been great, man. I think we're all, you see it on film. You know, anytime somebody has a big play, you know, the other quarterbacks behind are going crazy. And, you know, I think it's been a lot of good energy, a lot of camaraderie being built, a lot of high fives and smiles, you know. So I think those are all things, you know, when times get tough, you got to be able to rely on those strong relationships, and it's good to see those getting built. Happy Hump Day. It is Wednesday here on the Fan Midday Show. Happy Flag Day as well to all those who celebrate. I'm Will Haskett. He's Jimmy Cook. I'm just here so I won't get fined. Is that joke too old now? No, I love the uh, homage to Marshawn Lynch. I like the... Anthony Richardson dropped it yesterday. I like the Anthony Richardson ability to have fun, be lighthearted with it. That'll get you a long way in general. It will. At least in terms of press relations. Not going to do much in terms of on-the-field stuff with fans, but we're still in a honeymoon phase right now where little jokes like that. Oh, look at the joke that he made. Could he? There's not a whole lot he could say right now that's going to get him in trouble, but there's going to be stuff on the field that eventually we'll have our opinion of Anthony Richardson wavering, perhaps. We'll see what happens when we have real games coming up midway through the Colts' mandatory minicamp this week. I don't really know if we've learned anything. Jimmy, you've got a great piece up on 1075thefan.com about what this week sort of means a lot of things to cover today on a wednesday it is major week in my sport of choice the u.s open coming up tees off tomorrow morning out in los angeles my colleague at sirius xm he also does a ton of work on the action network so all of you looking for some action this week on the u.s open make sure you're here at the bottom of the hour 12 30 for jason sobel casey valier from the colts at one o'clock and alex golden will talk pacers a lot in the final hour today because we are a week and a day away from my favorite nba activity of every year and that is the nba draft it's the best night of my year the nba i love it i love drafts it's not the nfl where i feel like we have a lot of hype leading up to it and then the time between picks and the number of days for rounds just sort of ends up being anticlimactic in some respects i just love the unnecessary hype the crazy suits next thursday is going to be great and it could end up being a very important day coming up for the patients we'll get into that coming up in the last hour with alex golden fever win last night 87 66 they've won three games they absolutely curb stomped the mystics in the fourth quarter outscoring them 26 to 13 so the fever got a little something going Aliyah boston 23 14 and 6 last night so i wanted to shout Aliyah boston and the fever at the top of the show because we are paying attention i see you and that was uh, an impressive performance for them but there's a lot to go on here on a Wednesday. Jimmy, I've been all over the place back on Monday. I will have coverage on SiriusXM tomorrow leading things off for the U.S. Open. 
which is going to be a fun Father's Day finish in primetime on the West Coast. But it's that time of year. It's summer now. The NHL finals are now officially over. The Stanley Cup given to Las Vegas. Almost put double digits on the Panthers last night and mercilessly ended that series, which I told you last week when I was in here looked like a complete lopsided show. It was a lopsided show. And we're... 24 hours removed from the Nuggets, proving that the best team sometimes does actually win, even when they don't have the biggest star power or the sexiest names. And I think there's going to be a lot of conversation, Jimmy, around the NBA, how it finished, the fact that the two best players on the court for either team were the 41st and 30th picks overall in the draft, that being Jokic and Jimmy Butler, respectively, going into next week. But now it's here. I mean, we're pretty much in the offseason. So unless you are a absolutely depressed Cubs fan or hopeful Reds fan or those two aren't as interlinked anymore at least at this stage on June 14th yeah there's I don't I'm not saying that I'm drinking Kool-Aid Eddie Garrison's the best one to get a pulse on that in this studio but I was there at Great American as the resident Yankees fan of this building last month and the vibes that were in that park are wildly different than what they are right now, which is that maybe this season's going to be something. Well, because the division and De La Cruz is awesome. Like that's because yeah, the division is wide open. But again, like unless you really are saying, "Is this my baseball team?" We're now into this summer doldrums of, okay, what do we have? What are we building for in the big franchises around town? And I don't know which direction you want to lead off with today. Is it Colts that's most exciting right now? Is it the Pacers draft that is coming up that is the most exciting thing in Indianapolis sports right now? Is it? A little bit of life from the fever. Is it, I don't know what it might be right now in central Indiana sports as I come in here for a weekly visit with you and kind of ground myself back into the Indianapolis sports scene before going wall-to-wall golf again this coming week. I, I don't know. I, it's really strange to me that we can have a quarterback that has as much conversation just before and then just after the draft. And I don't feel as if from my perspective, I'm getting a whole lot of mini camp content in my face. You know, it's a lot of the big names aren't practicing this week. There's not a lot of turmoil, which in your piece I think was the most important part of it is that there's really you could very easily they're have just it, practicing. Yeah. They're just practicing new coaching staff, they're doing the thing, but there's really nothing I would say sexy that we're all gleaming onto. We're just ready to see some games and see this product on the actual field. We haven't had any additional fallout from the Isaiah Rogers situation. So maybe that's an isolated incident within the locker room. That's what you sort of hope for. Hope they get better. Hope they all figure out the playbook and hope that the product looks good in the field. But it's, I guess the only thing that you would be talking about if you're a Colts fan this week would be like, say if it's the bills and you've got apparently a disgruntled wide receiver in Stefan Diggs, and your star quarterback is saying, yeah, we need to help him out a little bit. So there's a bunch of red flags there and that may just be a, a red herring. I don't know. But this is, I don't know why this week just doesn't feel as, like, sexy is the word I keep using. It just doesn't feel like a week that is just gathering my attention when it comes to the Colts. Well, if you thought this week was lacking in sexiness or curb appeal, the following weeks after next week are going to have the same vibe to it. Right. Except next week we have the NBA draft and there'll be discussion of what the Pacers are going to do and where their direction is. They try to build closer towards getting back into the playoff conversation and getting out of the lottery. For right now, this week, this is a weird middle ground of the offseason for the Colts where, as you mentioned, thankfully there's not a lot of drama. And I know that you and I are in the same boat. If you gave me the choice of just nothing burgers all over the place at West 56th versus a wide receiver in Buffalo and Stephon Diggs that 
got paid that is on a championship contender that there's got to be more to this story or it's just fluff but it'd be weird for Sean McDermott to react the way that he did yesterday if it's just fluff yeah like I, I don't want that headache in my life I know you don't I know the Colts don't some would say well but we'd rather be the contender okay well that's not the conversation I'm having the conversation I'm having is do you want drama in a mandatory mini camp or not the Colts could very easily have that you could have a situation where either Jonathan Taylor or Michael Pittman Jr. are standing out saying hey this is my last year with the team. Give me my money. That hasn't happened yet. The only real drama, and I referenced this in that piece on 107.5thefan.com, and I think drama is too strong a word, is what's going to happen at the quarterback position. And again, as of right now, at least the way both those QBs are talking, there's no animosity. No. It appears to be a very healthy relationship from what we're able to see. Could that change in a month's time when the rubber hits the road and we're really looking at what the quarterback position ends up being. Yeah. Sure. But right now you don't have any of that and you're not going to get any answers this week, but as long as everybody stays healthy and to your point about not seeing any footage, a lot of that is we both know, but this sometimes the fans get confused on media only gets so much access sure. per week. Yep. It's three consecutive days. This day, two of three consecutive days yep. getting to see it. We'll have more footage throughout this week and then it'll be dark until training camp. Everything that Anthony Richardson said yesterday, you heard a lot of it on the top, was great. Everything Gardner Minshew said yesterday, also the other voice you heard in the wonderful melt by Eddie Garrison there at the top of the show, sounds great as well. There are two guys that are harmoniously working together as we are just trying to be the best quarterbacks we can be moving forward, and I agree with you. Now, when it time when it, it comes time to who's running first team reps in August, who's the first team quarterback at the first preseason game, you know, Carolina rolls out and Frank Reich says after what a week worth of workouts like this is our number one guy like Bryce Young is our number one first step right or he took the next step right he's he's done everything except come out and straight up say he's the starter right like that's, correct I mean yes. I, I'm 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 just he's having the fun starter. with it obviously Let's, he is the starter he is but the I starter. enjoy Frank Reich still tiptoeing around like he's got the next step we're not there yet but he's got the next he's right. the starter yeah. we don't necessarily have that here and I think that's okay I think that we have had too many summers of how is the new quarterback acquisition looking and we want that quarterback acquisition to be so good that it is the chip it is the piece that has pushed this franchise over the top you're not getting that necessary conversation right now it's we're all trying to get better sort of together which should that temper our expectations for what this team should be you and I've had this conversation ad nauseum on these airwaves about them not being the best team this year in the NFL is not going to hurt my feelings or your feelings or anybody else's feelings. I think that one additional good value chip of a draft pick, I'm not saying you have to be the worst team and be number one, but a top 10, top 12 draft pick again next year, especially given the some of the roster attrition, some of the holes that you feel like are going to exist on this roster wouldn't hurt this team if you just see growth in positions and in positional units that make you feel better. And so right now, if it's just new coaching staff, everybody fine, then that's great. And we don't need to see the sort of the turmoil. But it's the first offseason where I don't think we're necessarily clamoring for anything out of it. Anthony Richardson said yesterday, like, this is a tough, tough game at this level. If there's one thing that I have sort of learned or seen very, very early on in this is that the margin for error is a lot tighter. Well, of course, like, you know. Nature of the beast. No, S. We knew that. We knew that going in. And how he readjusted that is fine. But then, of course, he's chucking balls flat-footed 70 yards yesterday, and everybody's drooling over the potential, including some of his teammates. All stuff that I think we already expected. It's just amazing to me that we did we had no idea 
who the Colts might draft in this draft before Anthony Richardson was the guy. And so much of our energy this offseason was, who is it going to be? And then, whoa, what have we gotten with Anthony Richardson now that he is the guy? And it's like that was a black hole of energy, and all of our offseason focus went to there, and now it's just like, okay, can we just... Can we go kick off? Can we just go kick off and see what we've got? Whereas in I think in many years past, like this was a big week for yeah. us because we're like, how is how's Matt Ryan? How's Carson Wentz gelling with the talent? Like has has he made good strides to connect with his offensive line? Because we expect this guy to be the difference maker. Now we're kind of like, okay, we just know what the roster is. Let's just see what it is, what it performs like on the field. And why that's happened, and I have felt this way. And I'm going to say the name. Sorry, folks. I'm just going to do it. I have felt this way since the second Andrew Luck abruptly retired, which is that the Colts have sold every year since that this is still a championship contending roster or a team that we feel can really be playing meaningful football in January. I'm not going to go as far to say as they lied because I think they truly believe that. There's a difference between lying and being wrong. Yeah. They were wrong each one of those years to the point that the fan base thought, ah, Jacoby Brissett has a Band-Aid. The South is bad. We can do something fine. Phillip Rivers coming back for a, a second run and a new lease on life. We can make a little bit of noise. They didn't make the playoffs that year, but obviously they thought they were going to get him for longer. But ah, Carson Wentz, uh, I don't want to talk about that one. Matt Ryan's going to be the savior and have yeah. a second win in his career. Train wreck. This is the first year where... Like, if you took any, this is the fact of the entire NFL. If you took away the star quarterback from a franchise, name one Bengals, Chiefs, Bills. No. They're curtains. They're curtains in terms of being a contender. Yep. That's not to say that all the other positions don't matter, but that's the one position where if you have the answer, they don't matter quite as much as they would if you're trying to be perfect everywhere else. That's a long-winded way of saying the reason things have changed this year is because there's not these fake expectations that are thought of, man, we could really make a little bit of noise and make a playoff run. Those expectations aren't here anymore. It is, at a minimum, by the time week 17 and then you know week 18 closes, I want to be able to see that there was growth from Anthony Richardson and that he can play the position. Just like we felt with the Pacers that it was an awful season from a win-loss standpoint, but I see it. I see what you're trying to build. I think another part of it is we don't have the dramatic conversations about who's going to be a part of the future of this franchise in terms of investing in talent. I know that last week you guys had a lot of the conversations about what an extension for Jonathan Taylor should look like. What should his actual market value be? I don't even know if it's worth entertaining from the Colts brass until you see realistically what you have from your quarterback and the rest of this team. So in many respects, it's putting a lot of that stuff on hold because if you get into the season, you're like, well, maybe we don't have the quarterback position figured out. Maybe we do, but this skill set allows us to reallocate resources in other ways. Mm -hmm. I mean, you look at Minnesota had zero reason to get rid of Dalvin Cook from a football standpoint other than it saved them a little bit of cash, right? Like, I mean, wide receivers, and to an extent – one tier below elite wide receivers you can find in a variety of Mm -hmm. capacities out there and so there is no need to commit to money when you don't really know what your product is going to look like from the top position in collaboration with the head coach moving down so 
it's not even like we can have the conversations and even bring them up much in chatter. I know all the guys on the beat are certainly going to bring up all of these questions. And we discussed MPJ earlier in the week right. for that exact reason. Yeah, but there's no reason to have any, like, you just don't know. We don't know anything until we kick off this season. And with that being the case, you're kind of stuck this week. But like, oh, good. Well, I hope no one gets hurt. Like everybody go out in the field and have a really good time. I hope all of the the young men learn something and I hope they just don't get injured and we'll see you back here in August. I would push back on one thing and this is what we mentioned earlier in the week which is that I'm not, right? Clearly I'm not. But if I was running the franchise and I was as worried about corner as I actually am, I would look at this week as a last real benchmark to where I don't want to bring in a veteran halfway through training camp. I would like a veteran there at the start. It happens all the time with injuries where they come halfway through, but that's because you're forced to do that as a franchise. If you don't see at least a baseline where, okay, I want to run with the rookies out at training or out, sorry, out of training camp in Grand Park this week, then I'm looking at, okay, maybe we need to evaluate the veteran cornerback market. Outside of that, yeah, I'm with you. Stay healthy, get through this. Let's see a couple different strides, but we're not really going so far as to, to paraphrase from Jim or say, make the sausage right now. We're not yeah. worried about that until training camp. Well, and I think, too, the Colts are going to be in a position to buy off of the scrap heap from some of the other teams in the league. There are going to be cuts. There are going to be additional veterans that hit the market. There may be drafted players that are going to be roster squeezed out in certain places. I understand that the practice squad situation changes things a little bit for some players, but not really. So I think that there's always that opportunity to kind of fill those roster holes. Very similar to what he did this first couple of years. I mean, he built a roster not just through the draft, but because the Colts had so much lack of talent depth in the organization when Chris Ballard took over, he was able to build a better world of depth from organizations that already had that good depth. Because when you have great depth, eventually someone's going to get cut loose that can make a roster and be an impact player somewhere else. I don't necessarily know if cornerback in that particular position is one with a surplus around the league. That's a question that's above my pay grade. But you have to feel like they expect a couple of names at some point in time over the next couple of months to be out there to where they're like, well, look, we're going to be able to offer somebody an opportunity to come in here and play. And we don't have to worry about discarding the fifth or sixth guy in our cornerback room to be able to do it. And I think in Gus Bradley's system, you have to have some aggressive guys, you know, obviously on the edge, it requires that you have some guys with some good man and ball skills. But look, I think that you can rotate in some bodies that you can find maybe on that waiver wire coming up this year to where, Look, we know that they've never hit the panic button on West 56th Street. In fact, many of us have wanted to hit the panic button for them sometimes. But again, given all the things that we led this conversation with about the Colts, I'm not necessarily sure that this is something that as of this particular moment in time, you're like, well, yeah, we have to go and do something. It's not as if they don't have enough bodies on the roster to go play a football game right now. And I think that would be the only reason that you would see a move made at this juncture of the season in that particular position. Well, they could also do what they don't do, which is hit the panic button on corner, as we mentioned, once the Isaiah Rogers stuff came out. Because if they wanted to solve this issue, like if they wanted to go out, and I've said these names over and over again, I'm going to continue to say them over and over again until it becomes clear that they're not making a move for a veteran cornerback. And you've mentioned that as well in the past, too. If they wanted to go get Marcus Peters, they wanted to go get Ronald Darby, Casey Hayward, Eli Apple, Kyle Fuller. If they wanted to go get somebody like that, they have the cash ba- cap space to do it. Right. Like If they wanted that answer right now and they felt like they needed it, they don't need to wait for cuts to happen. They could go do it right now. Either it is a combination of the three or one of these individualized, which is they don't like what's out there. 
they don't like the price point for what's out there, right. or they really believe in their rookies and want to see what they have. Yes. And I wouldn't blame them for any of the three. Like I get it, but they could resolve this issue if they really wanted to or really felt like they needed to. And to your point, right now they don't. They don't feel like they need to panic and go throw a lot of money at a cornerback for one year, which we've argued bringing in a veteran wide receiver. Would that stunt the growth of wide receivers? Could arguably stunt the growth of some of your corners that you just took this year in the draft. So yeah. I get I get all sides, but man, I'd, I'd rather have it addressed going into camp versus middle of it having to really be in panic mode. How old's your car? Uh, <laughs> six months. Six months. How old was the car before that one? Uh, Owner lease. Owned uh, eight years. Okay. So we've had this absolute shortage of cars, right? Post-pandemic, supply chain, all these other sorts of things. You go in, you buy a car, and it's like the one time where a diminishing asset like a car actually had value beyond it. Because every single dealer is like, wants to sell you a car today and then buy that same car back from you tomorrow because they can resell it and get you into something different. So even though there weren't enough cars to sort of go around, that was the, sort of the system that was going on. So we all have probably been getting inundated by letters, whatever. Like I lease a car for three years and within the first nine months, hey, look, we've got this brand new one coming in. Like there's great, tra- come in and talk to us about your trade, everything like this. And you're like, oh, well, that makes a lot of sense. Like I can get into something new and maybe I'll get the same price on this new one, even though they want this sort of value and you end up sort of playing this game back and forth of am I truly getting value for all of the work that's going in there and this is a really really weird metaphor for how I'm sort of dealing with the Colts but I feel like the Colts have been constantly trading in that car every year to try and get the best sort of value moving forward and this offseason the whole roster it's, yeah I mean yeah I mean just like just make- not the whole roster I'm, I'm saying I don't know if you were highlighting the way, any areas. No, the way they're approaching it is like we can do something to then get into something fancier that's going to be better without necessarily just sticking to a broader sort of plan and understanding that what you have is what it is, but it's also still going to get you to the same spot that this new fancier one might. And while getting a quarterback in the top four picks of the draft is probably would someone would say in this metaphor is like the upgrade it's like that fell where it was they took what they had and while i have said hey look so-and-so's out there maybe another edge rusher hey so-and-so's out there maybe another cornerback it's as if the colts have just said no we're we're ripping up all of your mail that says we have all of these options in we are in this car and we are going to see what we have with this car and we will come back to you in a year's time and let you know if we want to participate in this. Because guess what? We still know you're going to want this used asset vehicle coming up in a little bit. And so instead of continuing to roll things forward and thinking that they get the, the fancier one, they're like, you know, you know what? I'm going to wait and see a little bit this year. And that might be a bad metaphor for the entire team roster building. But to me, that's just kind of how I feel this offseason is going for the Colts. And I'm okay. And I want to make this abundantly clear. I'm okay with admitting what you are and who you are. And maybe they're doing it more with their actions than they were trying to confuse us with their words in years past. The darker side of that is we're just trying to get through this season and pay this thing off. And then next year we'll, we'll splurge. But for right now, we're just trying to, I trying like, to pay the thing off and go get And I'm a, not necessarily sure if that's... The Lamborghini Marvin Harrison Jr. edition is what Right, and I'm not for. necessarily sure that's as bad of a plan as... like what I don't even know what additional all-in you could sort of have in this. But just... I mean, could you imagine? I could envision a scenario where last year got so bad 
as it did, and they still found a way to go out and sign a veteran quarterback, one of the veteran quarterbacks, a Derek Carr, somebody off of the heap, and used the top pick to either get more assets or to strengthen some other positions. They could have easily told us, look, our defense is one player away. We think we have the weapons. We've got Jonathan Taylor. We're going to get this offense back in gear. We're going to roll in here with Derek Carr. We're going to use the fourth pick. We trade back to eight. We get a couple of guys. We get another corner. We get this, and we're making a run at the AFC South. They could have easily have done that, and that would have been them, again, rolling in that car off of nine months of lease and getting the brand new one. Instead, they were like, you know what? This is who we are, and our pick is four, and we're going to pick what we think is the need, and we're going to ride this sucker out. And I and I'm actually appreciative of that as someone who has ripped up all of that stuff from the variety of car deal, great car dealers sure. here around town. We're here in the drivehubler.com studio. You can go over, and I'm sure the fine folks at Hubler would love to talk to you about the value of your car for a new one. I'm just telling you right now, I'm happy in the car that I have. The only and I'm happy with my Colts the way that they are. The only problem at all with the analogy as a whole, and I it, it was beautiful by the way. If you go position by position and you just look at that quarterback band-aid aspect, the car dealership they're working at is nowhere near the heights and the powers of drivepeople.com. We're over at Joe's resale where it's like, sure. oh my goodness, that's a it's a Cadillac over there. Yeah, it has 150,000 miles on it, but does it start? But okay, the one position go. that matters, the one position that matters in the NFL is the car analogy. And so that's yes. what the Colts have been doing. Correct. And so this time it was, no, this is what our position is. This is what our situation is giving us. We are not going anywhere else. And then that, to me, is a trickle-down philosophy to the rest of the roster. They got their credit score back in order, and they're, they're ready to roll. Man, have, you ever had, uh, have you ever had your identity stolen? I've not. Oh, my gosh. I had someone steal my identity a year ago, open up a credit card with uh, USAA. I have no military ties they know what it means that to serve. would have that would have yes um gronk can't get one apparently i could with <laughs> false credentials and it took forever to get that thing off my credit score dipped like 150 points now fortunately i just refinanced a car and there wasn't any major purchases or anything that had to happen so i could la- let the thing play out but holy cow to watch that thing just go down the toilet because someone I'm sure i found the person's address who <laughs> ended up where they mailed their fake credit card to they were somewhere in dallas and I looked at it on Google Maps, and I was like, I don't think I need to be visiting that neighborhood anytime soon. But it'd be kind of fun if I just like knocked on the door, and I was like, hello, you have my credit card for USAA, and you've maxed it out. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, it was... Anyway, yeah. I'm sorry. That Having stinks. your credit go through the toilet. No, it's it's horrendous. Sign up for one of your favorite credit check sort of places. Most banks have it. Like my bank, I bank with Chase, and... Like they have a whole thing. I get alerts now. I get a weekly email digest update on all of my credit activity. So make sure if you're out there, you are doing that because you're doing yourself a service when you do that. All right. It's a consumer friendly show here on the fan. Do you want to learn anything from Minicamp today? Is there anything possible we could learn from Minicamp today? Who's starting yesterday? week one? No, we're not going to learn that today. Well, you asked me if there's anything I wanted to learn. That's what I'd like to uh, learn. Will we actually learn something from Colts Minicamp today? We'll talk to Casey Vallier coming up at the top of the next hour, but we'll ask him that same question. I would like to think we might find a little bit more continuity in terms of what's going on in the tight end room, perhaps, because there's so many bodies there. I feel like that's one where you could potentially see some An separation. Ogle, Ogletree and Woods did not practice yesterday. Ogletree obviously coming off of his ACL tear. Um, Jelani Woods nursing a hamstring injury. So you have two guys that, as of this time a year ago, you thought were going to factor into that tight end room. But yeah, you're right. Someone's getting pinched. You feel like by the time we get to yeah, seven camp. tight ends in there, there's no there's no chance in terms of definitive answers, though. Yeah, there's a lot of answers I would like to have. No, there's probably nothing that we're going to get clear cut 
until the real battle start in training camp. You, again, you get some separation, maybe some some footing into who's going to be in the slot at wide receiver. You're going to be rolling with Isaiah McKenzie. He's going to be Josh Downs. But again, those are all positional battles where what's really going to be established over the next two days, and Casey will elaborate with us at the top of the hour, is your baseline measurements. Like if you're having to take a lie detector test and they want right. to get your baseline on things, this is your baseline measurements for where things are going into training camp. It doesn't mean Jack for who's actually going to be the week one starters at their respective positions, but you're getting a feel for where everybody's at at this first checkpoint towards training camp. Yes. Or final checkpoint towards training camp. All right. We will figure out what we want to learn from training camp, or I should say volunteer, uh, not volunteer, mandatory mini camp this week. Jeez, there's so many different titles to it. It's, it's hard to know. It's hard to know who to pick this week at the U.S. Open. It really is. I'm supposed to be that guy. I came on the morning show this morning. They asked me that question right out of the jump, and I was like, you I said just don't know. I just I know he's not, not playing. I'm just kidding. Seven, nine, <laughs> I just don't know. That would have been flirtatious for Kevin. Um, so we're going to talk to somebody who I think can help me because he's out there right now. A colleague of mine, Jason Sobel. We'll talk U.S. Open picks next. It is the Fan Midday Show. We're still on the air. Uh, can't say the same for our brethren in Edmonton. I just saw this coming across. Uh, there was an AM sports radio station in Edmonton. In the middle of their mid-show, they announced that the entire place was getting cut. The, ent- oh. the entire <laughs> was getting shut down. 1,300 positions. Like In the middle, mid-show, someone came in and said, hey, look, we're pulling the plug. This thing is over. Everybody go home. Was there a send off or was it? Just I don't know. I don't know. I'm just, I, just saw the, I just saw the headline on awful announcing, um, which I laugh at. This is your guys' job and I have a job too. And you know what? Every day I wonder if I'm going to get fired because you just never know what you might say. And most of the time when I work with our next guest, sometimes we walk it up to the line and we wonder if this is the last day that we ever have a show. He is on Sirius XM PGA Tour Radio. It's U.S. Open Radio this week on Sirius XM. I'll be part of the early coverage tomorrow. He is in L.A. and also part of the Action Network. My buddy Jason Sobel joins the program. Hey, Sobes. You know, Will, when nobody's listening, you can say whatever you want and you don't get fired. That's, that's, right. <laughs> that's true. So you're saying from two to four daily, like next week when you and I are co-hosting together, that no one will be listening and we can say whatever we want post this U.S. Open? That's exactly what I'm saying. Look, if I could do a show with Michael Collins, I don't know what, 60% of the time, then, and you know where I'm going with that, then uh, you'll be just fine. I'd like to think that this is going to be an informed conversation today, Jason. You've been out there for a couple of days. I just, I don't know. I know that you and I were texting last week. You have a feeling on what this course lends itself to. Has that changed at all since you've been there? Because this is such a unique U.S. Open venue, a unique time of year to be playing in los angeles it's a redone golf course i i still can't really wrap my head around who i think has an edge this week outside of the typical u.s open type of venues yeah after walking around here a couple times first of all i love this place this is going to uh, I hope show out on TV because in person, uh, this place is really cool. It's rustic. It's natural. It looks like, you know, sometimes a, a golf course will look like, well, they made this into a beautiful golf course. And uh, it looks a little artificial, you know, the, the blue dye in the water and making the grass a little bit greener, you know, overwater it a little bit. Uh, this place looks like when when the earth first, uh, you know, uh, first uh, – uh, started it, it looked like there there would have been a golf course right here. It just looks like it's like part of the the territory, part of the property that you know was just meant to be here. And so, in any case, I, I think it's going to be a really fun open. 
all of that said, I, I'm sort of pot committed on my opinion here this week, Will. And that's, um, you know, and I've heard from a lot of people saying, well, it's over 7,400 yards. It's only a par 70. We've got a 290-yard par 3. It's going to play really, really long. Only the longest hitters have a chance. I'm walking around out here, and the grass is very firm. Uh, you know, I, I think balls are going to roll. It's going to, we're not going to get any sort of uh, rain whatsoever for the next five days. And so uh, I think you're going to see a fast, firm golf course, especially by the weekend, which negates the advantage that the longer players have. And so I'm looking for, and again, pot committed on this, and it could change, but I am looking for creative players. You're going to have a lot of uh, uh, different lies than you normally do, side hill lies, downhill lies. You're going to have interesting uh, pitch shots out of the rough. You're going to have uh, just like little uh, nuanced plays around the greens. And so I'm looking for the guys who are most artistic, so to speak, with their games, most creative, and those are the guys that I'm banking on this week. Jason, what's more likely to happen? Phil Mickelson misses the cut or is a top 20 finish? I would say, based on the betting numbers, missing the cut is more likely, but I actually kind of like Phil this week. I kind of like a bunch of the live players this week. I feel like they've been freed up. Brooks Kepka has been walking around major championships for the last half decade looking like a sourpuss. Everyone's like, man, this is going to be a great week. And Brooks is like, oh, man, i got to go play golf. Everyone now is walking around like, man, i got to answer all these questions. This is terrible. Brooks is walking around with a big smile on his face in his press conference yesterday with, hey, see all the travelers next week. Uh, just stir the pot a little bit. I, I think the live players, uh, have, you know, they've had something to prove for the last year and a half, but I think – even more so now that they may be integrated back into PGA Tour life in the not-too-distant future. Uh, on, in general, I like the live players. I don't know about Phil, but you talk about creative players. I mean, Phil's been the most creative player on the planet for the last 25 years, and that may not be the case anymore. But certainly, I, I think this should fit his vibe a little bit. I'm going to provide the caveat here for our audience. I'm not going to ask Jason any questions about pga tour piff any of this because he like me have been asked these questions a thousand times we just don't know we don't know anything there's nothing there's nothing further we can add we don't know anything beyond last week we were probably all a little bit too speculative last week as well and we ended up having the greatest finish to a golf tournament on sunday and i'm hoping that this week also provides us with a great golf story to take away from the distraction that there is so i dive back in jason to talk about this week and the primetime finish and this golf course um it is is it too simple for me to look at the last really hard test? We've had two really hard tests of golf over the last month. The PGA Championship up in Rochester and then the Memorial Tournament in Dublin a couple of weeks ago. Is it too simple for me to look at those? I think the PGA Championship resembled a traditional U.S. Open, whereas I felt the Memorial resembled just a really, really good all-around super, super hard test of golf. And my eyes are just looking at the top 10 of that leaderboard, and I'm like, "Mm, yeah, Victor Hovland, Mm, yeah, Denny McCarthy, good value. Mm, Siwoo Kim, 90-1, to pretty good value for a guy with bad U.S. Open. It's like if someone is listening right now, they're like, who do I want to bet on this week for the U.S. Open? I'm like, you know what? Just roll out three or four famous names you know from Liv who have won majors and then look at the top 10 for Memorial. I'm almost just like, that's just my, my stock answer at this point in time. Yeah. I look, you could go, uh, you get a lot more wrong than doing that because I, I think you're on the right track there. I, I don't know that you necessarily needed to be 
on the leaderboard at the Memorial a couple of weeks ago. But I also feel like this is not the place where if you're out of form, you're going to show up here in L.A. and figure it out and find it. Like I, I, Justin Thomas, who, uh, look, his number has gotten way up there in the betting markets. I mean, can you imagine? 50, 60, Tommy right? Fleetwood. Yeah. Tommy Fleetwood has a shorter number than Justin Thomas. Yeah. Bryce DeChambeau. Hideki Matsuyama, they have shorter numbers in the betting market than Justin Thomas. Yet, I don't want to touch Justin Thomas because he hasn't been in good form, and I don't think you can show up on this golf course and figure out your form. All that said, I do think that strokes gain luck is going to play a big factor mm. in this one. Uh, you know, there are some, you're going to get some gnarly lies, you're going to get some very good looking lies. And uh, you can have a ball, and this is very typical of the U.S. Open because they want players to think about every single shot. The, the last thing the USGA wants is for a player to be walking down the fairway and say to his caddy, hey, hand me the pitching wedge. I'm sure it's going to be a pitching wedge. Stock shot here. There will be no stock shots, no standard shots this week. You're going to hear a lot of players essentially do what Jordan Spieth and Michael Greller do on a regular basis, which is spend five minutes talking about every single shot because there's so many different ways to play them and so many uh, different potential outcomes from them as well. And so... I do think that luck is going to play a big part, and that could, uh, you know, certainly up the variance level a little bit. But yeah, I, the players who are playing well—I mean, that's that's usually a pretty good barometer for where you want to start with uh, making picks for a major championship. Jason, all that said, whether it's outright winner, whether it's top ten, top twenty, what are your favorite bets, or what action do you do you like the most heading into the U.S. Open? Yeah, so I've got essentially two favorite outrights. Instead of having one, two on my list, I've got a 1A, 1B. And I talked about that creativity, that artistry that you need around this golf course. In my mind, the two most creative golfers on the planet right now, as far as visualizing shots, as far as trying to pull off uh, up and downs that most other players wouldn't even dream of, are Cameron Smith and Jordan Spieth. And so uh, I like each of those to, jo- those guys to be right there at the end of the thing. I think this course is going to play into their hands uh, very nicely. If you're looking for some long shots further down the board uh, that have a chance of winning, and again, long shots in golf. For those people who are uh, looking at the betting odds this week and saying, well, you know, can these guys really win? Uh, there's two different types of long shots. It's either a long shot who has a massive ceiling and could have a, a spike week and win a major championship, or it's a long shot who, well, he's not going to win, but you can take him for a top 10, top 20. I'll, I'll give you three names here. Patrick Reed, Siwoo Kim are two guys who have yeah. shown uh, those ceilings in big-time events. They're each at around 80 to 1 in the books right now, which I think is a really good number. And I'll tell you, Ryan Fox is playing some very nice golf on the PGA Tour. I've got a very good feeling about him on this golf course. I don't know that he can win at around 130 to 1, but for a top 10 play, I think he makes uh, a lot of sense. Yeah, big hitting Ryan Fox. We're talking to Jason Sobel, U.S. Open Radio on Sirius XM and of the Action Network. Back-to-back years, we have had a European win this championship. After six straight years, it was a U.S. champion. And if I'm on... Uh, DraftKings right now, plus 105 that there will not be a winner from the United States. Uh, I kind of I feel like this is a weak a tournament because of all the things you've mentioned, the creativity, the shot making, that it kind of lends itself to a scrappier all around sort of European player. In addition to the fact that you've got a number of Englishmen and a few other folks from around the globe that are playing really good golf right now. I, I kind of like a non-U.S. winner this week. 
Yeah, I mean, look, Cameron Smith's at the top of my list, so I would take non-U.S. in that. You know, certainly uh, some U.S. players who are playing well, Scotty Scheffler and uh, Brooks Kepka among them. And I mentioned I, uh, Kepka's the one that I keep coming back to where it's like, how many times are we going to get fooled when we show up in a major championship yeah. and we spend three days trying to figure out, like, well, it kind of plays towards these players and you got to do this well and maybe this guy's going to show up this week. He's a nice long shot. And then at the end of the week, we're like, what, why were we wasting all our time? It's Brooks Kepka. He's the best player in the majors. And he goes out and he wins these yeah. things. I mean, at some point, the paralysis by analysis that you hear on the golf course can happen on the radio and in TV as well. And all of us spend way too much time trying to figure this stuff out when the easiest answer, the Occam's razor answer is uh, Brooks Kepka, just because he's really good at majors and he wins these things. So, uh, you know, that's a very long-winded way of saying, uh, yeah, I'm probably staying away from the plus 105 bet there. Okay. What's the pulse on Colin Morikawa this week? Uh, so he spoke yesterday. I know that, and for those who uh, don't have the background there, two weeks ago he was two shots off the lead going into the final round of the Memorial Tournament, had back spasms, was forced to withdraw. Said yesterday he was very disappointed with that, but uh, he's done a lot of work. He said, it's going to look a little weird when I'm teeing up my ball this week. Uh, you're going to think that I'm hurting. I'm just doing it a certain way to protect. Huh. And other <laughs> I'm feeling great. Uh, you're not buying it? I'm not buying it. Oh. Are you buying it? Yeah, I'm buying it. Do you, I don't know. you bet it? Do you would you ever bet a guy who is awkwardly teeing up his ball? <laughs> non Tiger Woods division. Uh, yeah, I guess not. Yeah, uh, yeah I. Uh, that's a good point. I. I don't know. I mean, Colin doesn't look like a guy who. I don't think he has it in him to tell a little fib to to the to the general public, but. Yeah, you're, it's a fine point. I mean, look, I'm, I'm not betting. I'm not putting my money on Colin this week, but I, I do think that he's healthy enough to go out there and play. I don't think he's going to withdraw in the middle of this with more back spasms. Uh, you know, I think that he's he's taking all the precautionary measures he needs to. I'll get you out of here on this one, Jason. We're talking to Jason Sobel, U.S. Open Radio on Sirius XM, and of the Action Network. Uh, let's get it even away from the betting a little bit. What are you most curious about this week? What's a what's a question about this golf tournament, this field, this course, whatever that you hope is answered on Sunday night? I mean, really, I want to just see this course in uh, you know in the spotlights. We're in the hills of uh, Beverly Hills, in the foothills of, uh, of of Hollywood, and and I think this golf course is going to be the star all the the golfers themselves are going to be the supporting cast but uh the course is going to be the superstar of the show and I, I just can't wait to see it how it performs how it reacts on on this stage walking around i'm like i, I mean we walked i was with uh two former pga tour players who are now in the media and we were walking uh about 30 yards in front of the first team we all turned around like whoa wait that's the first tee right there it's uh, it's a lot of very sort of I won't call it awkward, but at least unique um, places where, you know, the, the first teeing ground is right next to the clubhouse. And, uh, you know, there's, there's tee boxes in place where you're like, you know, it's right next to the green where, uh, where we just walked off. It's, there's a lot of unique stuff going on here. Again, I hope it shows out on TV, but I think the course could be a huge superstar by the end of the week. It will host the U.S. Open again in 16 years, but sort of enjoy it this Can't week. Wait. 
Um, be, be, well, we have U.S. Open dates scheduled all the way out to 2051, in case anybody wants to know where that is. But between now and the next time we're in L.A., it's kind of that new road to Pinehurst, Oakmont, Shinnecock, Pebble, Winged Foot, Marion. Some of the golf courses that sort of look the same. And so I, I think, Jason, I hope a lot of casual fans this week tune in because it will look and feel very, very unique. And, of course, for those of us here in the Eastern Time Zone, nothing better than primetime golf, especially when you have the free pass dad's out there on father's day so enjoy it jason exactly. thanks for the time buddy appreciate it thanks i've got charlie woods the 2039 us open with sammy speed to be a low amateur there you go thank you for that all right <laughs> gosh charlie will be he'll be pushing 30 by that oh my this is crazy whatever um it's amazing how far they have it out that's jason sobel um when we're done today at three you can catch the second hour of his show over on sirius xm if you want to hear the rest of his prognostications the I think it's going to be hard to peg. Um, he was early on, just sort of locked into the creative guys and Cameron Smith and Jordan Spieth. Uh, I said this morning I was going to make up my mind on the air today where I'm sort of leaning in terms of making picks for this particular tournament. I don't necessarily know if I agree with him on that. I feel like everybody's going to have to be creative in some way. I, I still think this is going to play. I think the USGA can't get out of its own way of creating a U.S. Open that plays like a U.S. Open. And even though these fairways are wider and even though they're a little bit more receptive, so a guy that doesn't drive it as well, like a Cameron Smith or a Jordan Spieth, can kind of be in play. I just feel like U.S. Open horses are going to be there at the end. Victor Hovland, John Rahm, Brooks Kepka, those types of guys, when it's all said and done. And I, I kind of think even... Like no disrespect to Jason, who, by the way, I want to point this out. He's had four straight outright winners hit on the PGA Tour in the last four weeks, and he, like he said, he normally has a a one A and a one B with that a one A and a one B. You know, I don't want to pump him up too much, but yeah, he had actually last week his two outright picks were Nick Taylor and Tyrrell Hatton, and almost both of them almost ended up in the playoff, and and um, Nick Taylor ended up winning that. But yeah, it's been an impressive run for Jason on outrights this year. That is remarkable. And again, I, I'm maybe I would have been more aggressive with the questions. I feel like we covered a lot of bases. Well, he gave way. you his two outrights. So that's all. Yeah, that's all. That's all I really needed to know. I do want to, while we have an opportunity, since we're in the golf spirit right now, I want to remind all of our listeners that if you're looking for a little bit of golf and entertainment with the fan, Tuesday, July 11th, the fan's going to be out at the Back Nine Golf and Entertainment Center. It's going to be a fun little event where you can either participate as an individual or with a foursome for benefiting the American Heart Association. Opportunity to see Kevin and Query. JMV will be out there. Again, tickets purchased benefit the American Heart Association. If you'd like to be a part of that great event, whole day, registration at 10 a.m., welcome with JMV at 10.55, golf outing around 11 o'clock, start time 3 p.m. Again, this is out at Back Nine Golf and Entertainment Center. There'll be also a live auction benefiting the American Heart Association as well. Sports memorabilia, one-of-a-kind experiences. If you'd like to be a part of that, again, that's Tuesday, July 11th. Go to 1075thefan.com. Tickets are on sale now. That'll be fun. I have a burger while you swing a golf club there. You could have a burger when you're in L.A. this week for the U.S. Open. We have the great burger debate coming up here next on the Fan Midday Show. Kind of up against it here in this first hour. I'm saving the debate, Jimmy. We're scrapping. We're scrapping the debate. I will tease the audience coming up at the bottom of the next hour. We will go all in. Double, triple patty, melty cheese. Love a good double, double special sauce whatever it is that you need to put on your burger to make it happen animal style let's go um are you excited are you gonna watch the u.s open yes this week? Okay. i will does I, the fact that it moves to prime time is that more enticing to you no 
Not necessarily. I mean, U.S. Open and Father's Day weekend are synonymous, right? Like, I, I enjoy whenever those two events cross. Yep. Um, now that I'm speaking out loud, I'm not confident if it's that way every single cycle. Is it that way every single cycle? Yeah. I'm misremembering things. It's, I mean, it's not. Close. Yeah, we've had a couple, but I mean... We don't get we don't get this very often. Either way, when you get that crossover, that's always extra special for me. I have a lot of memories growing up watching different majors for the U.S. Open with my dad. I think a lot. Oh of no, people... we get it. All. I'm sorry. You're, I'm sorry. I thought you were talking about the primetime thing. No, no, no. no the, every the, year it's that's what I thought. Okay, yeah, yeah, so so, so that days. that's what I thought. So the the mesh there always special for me to begin with. So I'm tuned in already. Um, but the primetime thing doesn't necessarily change my viewing habits. I'm not mad about it, right? But it doesn't doesn't change anything for me necessarily. Yeah, I like the fact that I can kind of have my Sunday and we can do things. I'm probably going to sneak away, play some golf, but then me and the kids, we can hang out, do stuff, be in the pool, and I don't feel like, because I'm obligated from a work stand. i got to watch it. I mean, not just as a fan, but I can't go talk intelligently next week on the air without seeing the very end of everything. So I have to at least kind of get some of that in when it's all said and done. But yeah, there's some there's some value out there on the board. It's just, it's such a hard tournament to peg. And I thought that Jason Sobel in the last segment made a great point. It's like, we're going to name a number of names, and then no one's really going to give Brooks Kepka the respect that he deserves. And he's been the best player in majors this year. And it's, I guess, a venue. It's, it's like a Texas golf course in Los Angeles. When I say that, it's like the rolling terrain, the type of grass is it's completely different than a lot of Southern California courses. There's no Poana. There's no Kikuya. I know these are things that people are like, what are you talking about? Poana and Kikuya. But the types of grasses that you typically see at Torrey Pines or Riviera, they don't have it. This golf course. When what they type of scores it. are we talking about this week? No one knows. But I mean, we're talking about, there's going to be a 290 yard par three and a 90 yard par three. Think about that. <laughs> two bills between the two of them. In the five par three layouts, I mean, there could be some carnage, but at the same point in time, like I could also see these guys. I mean, these guys are so good. I think it's just going to be. I hope it's entertaining, and I am all for scoring. Like I know that people watch this tournament and love even par and carnage. I just don't think that we're. I just don't necessarily know if we need that. It's it'll be okay if eight to ten under par ends up winning this golf tournament as long as it's a good one. All right, we'll get back into the Colts conversation. One hour in the books here on the Fan Midday Show. Casey Valier on the other side. One hour in, two hours to go here on the Fan Midday Show from the DriveHubler.com studios. He's Jimmy Cook. He's also Eddie Garrison. It's bring your son to work day today. You guys didn't get the memo on bring your daughter to work day, and you also didn't get the memo on bring your son to work day. So, all right, maybe next time we'll figure this uh, we'll figure this whole thing out. Colts, a couple years. Okay, all right, there you go. The Colts are trying to figure out what this roster is going to look like midway through this mandatory summer mini camp. To talk about that and all things the shoe. Front of the program, Casey Valley, radio coordinator, in-game studio host for the Colts, is with us. Casey, I'm going to lead off this question with a familiar one that I've had. What was the most curious thing you wanted to learn from this week, getting everybody together? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I honestly haven't even thought about that. Um, uh, I, I think it's just it, for us, you know, it's mandatory for for the guys to be here, and throughout, it's been really good participation. We haven't really seen anybody missing, so I think it was just another week of just building on, you know, everything new. I mean, with a new head coach and essentially an entirely new offensive staff, you just want to kind of keep putting on additional reps. You want to see all of that. So 
honestly, this week hasn't been much different from what we've seen the last previous weeks. So it's kind of hard, I think, to really judge on what I was expecting um, or what I wanted to see or what I was. I, I think ultimately it was just kind of another week before everybody leaves. And if you think about it, I mean, take a you take a five to six week hiatus you know, away from the complex, and then when you get back. It's camp, and all of a sudden you got games coming up real soon. So it's just more and more repetition with the guys is ultimately what I was hoping to see this week for sure. Casey, you and J.J. Stankovitz had a piece on Colts.com regarding an offensive notebook, things starting to slow down for Anthony Richardson. You dive into Shane Steichen and how things are the same or if he's the same person as he was in Philadelphia, and you highlight Kenny Moore as well. Focusing on Richardson for just a second, uh, in one of the quotes that you guys had had from him, he mentions that, at this speed now where things are at, he could see guys flying around, but then all of a sudden he looked right and he has a defensive end right on his tail. That's a different change of pace for him than at the previous level. That's something that he's going to have to get used to in general if he ends up being the starter week one, week six, whatever. But from your observation and how he's sharing what he's reading and how he's sharing his process and what you've seen in your availability – is he about where you'd like him to be or where you would have expected him to be in these early going checkpoints of the offseason? Yeah, really. I, I think absolutely he's right there. I think mainly just listening to him yesterday, the first time we've heard him talk since he was here for rookie minicamp, um, I just feel like everything he's saying, he truly means. And I don't I don't know if that's, you know, us just drinking the Kool-Aid or all that, but I just feel like when he talks it's all with a purpose, and that is one thing that I've been very impressed with. You know, talking to, you know, some of the staff, some of the players, everybody's saying the same things about him. So when he's talking about things are starting to slow down, he's got Gardner Minshew in his back pocket, kind of helping him get through everything. I truly, I truly believe all of that stuff, and I think he's just not only is he saying all the right things, I think he's doing the right stuff. So, you know, everybody wants to say, especially in June, that's where you want to be. Um, but I would think that right now he is right where he wants to be, right where the team wants him to be. I know he's ready to kind of take that next step to kind of, you know, learn this and learn that. And it is one of those things you got to remember, he's a rookie. He has been an NFL quarterback without taking a, a true snap for just a matter of, you know, a month and a half. So it's a process, and you got to you know understand it from that aspect. But I think to this point, he's right where he needs to be and right where this team wants him to be. Now a lot more questions are going to start coming up when August rolls around and you're out there at training camp kind of seeing you know, where he's taking snaps is it with the ones with twos and all of that stuff. So there'll be a lot more question marks when that comes around because you're looking at these guys every single day. But I think right now he's right where you need him to be. Casey, you mentioned that kind of lockstep of everybody you know, saying the right things and being there. And I led the show. Jimmy and I were sort of talking about how this is not a negative, but I don't feel like this week particularly is like of I need to read every piece of content about what's going on at the Colts complex. I think we're sort of just oh, come waiting. Oh, man. I, I know. I, no, it's just I'm, I'm just saying like I think I'm saying that in a good way. I, I feel like in right. years past we wanted to know like how are guys gelling? What's going on here? Is this the piece? Like is are they we were sort of anticipating as fans like this is this is it. Like we're going to learn so much from this summer because we want this season whereas right now I feel like we're very comfortable with what this roster is and what this team is from just a, a smooth vibe? Does it feel like that inside, you know, sort of the doors of like, yeah, everybody's just kind of laid back and, and having a good time with it and there isn't this sort of heightened level of anticipation? 
I think 100%. I'm, I think that's really well put because that's one of the things that I think I was in that other boat, you know, leaning into it. You think about all the change-ups. You know, you got a new coach, new offensive staff, new quarterback, a lot of new pieces. So I thought there would be a lot more question marks, a lot more. We've got to pay attention to every single snap and all of that. But you go out and you watch practice, and everybody's just – it seems like everybody's getting along, everybody's having a good time, and you just kind of take a deep breath and you go, hey, I think we're right where we need to be. I think there's a lot of questions that we're all going to have, but I think that's a great way to put it as you play. It's, it's one of those things where, yeah, you aren't, you aren't paying that close attention to everything just because you're not really sure on a lot of things, and that's yeah. kind of a good feeling, to be honest, if that makes sense. It does. Casey, is there a sense or just an overall – I don't know. I don't want to say happy, but but a, a proud sense for where the Colts are at right now in terms of the way they constructed the quarterback room and bringing in Minshew. And I know they're all saying all the right things right now, but is there a sense of relief and confidence knowing that there appears to be a real connection with Gardner Minshew and Anthony Richardson to the point that regardless of which one ends up being the week one starter, that they are very much going to bat for each other right now, at least in the early goings of the offseason? Oh, 100%. It's one of those things where you can never really know. I'm sure, uh, you know, Shane Steichen has been with Gardner Minshew the last couple of years, so he knew him as a player and as a person a lot more than we did here. But it's one of those things where these guys are competitors. Everybody wants to play. You know, I mean, that you don't come to a place and just be like, you know what, I'm good to just be a backup and do this. Gardner Minshew wants to come in here and play, but he also just has this different mentality, which it's very different when you think about just the quarterback's throughout the league a lot of guys i mean you see guys that they're starters and that's it and and, and if they're not then they're you know they're cam newtons there there's a lot of that in the nfl but ultimately one of the things the colts have here with sam ellinger with gardner Minshew, and definitely with anthony richardson who they're all three kind of like best friends like they hang out together they do all this stuff they're trying to make each other better and gardner said it yesterday he said you know look at the end of the day I'm here with two other guys. We're trying to win for this team. So whoever's taking the snaps out there, we've got to be supportive. We've got to do everything we can to get them ready and in the best position to win. And I truly think that that's the way he feels. So a guy like Gardner Minshew is a perfect guy to be here to help Anthony move along. Gardner, I mean, as you remember, as a rookie, was thrust into a position in Jacksonville where he shined. So he has been there where – Ultimately, it was kind of the opposite. There wasn't any expectations, but he was able to break a lot of those. So he can kind of bridge that gap. And I really think that these guys, they're really, they're really pulling for each other. It's, it's a really interesting dynamic to watch. Like you watch the quarterbacks, they truly are just having a lot of fun out there. Casey Vallier, radio side for the Indianapolis Colts, joining us here on the Fan Midday Show. I'm going to switch gears a little bit. This is a week where you're seeing a lot of players developing relationships with either existing or new coaches. You walk into the building, Casey, you watch the practices. Which coach would inspire you most to run through a wall? Oh, man, that's really hard. Uh, I mean, Tony Sperano Jr., there's something about him that just – it's kind of geared up this whole offensive line. And there's something about him that kind of makes me want to run through a wall, which it's fitting because of the position. You know, he's the offensive line coach, so it makes sense. But he's just – he brings this different aura about him that you really – it resonates. Uh, We've talked to the offensive line, and they're not at all saying that it was a voice that was needed change. 
but that they have really responded very well to Tony Sperano Jr.'s voice and the way he's viewing this offensive line group. And ultimately, if you ask me, I think this is the line. This is a group that's going to take the biggest leap from what we saw last year. There was, you know, there were issues all throughout the line. You know, I mean, they gave up almost the most sacks in, in Colts history last year. But I really think that the core is there and that they can take a big step. And I think Tony Sperano Jr. is definitely going to help that. He's got some great lineage. I mean, his dad was a great coach for a long time. But if you just meet this guy, I mean, he, he kind of looks like an offensive lineman. So I, I wouldn't be – he's one of those guys that he could put on pads and you would say, oh, yeah, he's your starting right guard because it just makes sense. So I'm not shocked at all that the guys are responding. But I know me, every conversation I've had with him, I'm ready to run through a wall for sure. Casey Valier, the Colts Radio Network, with us here on the Fan Midday Show. Casey – we talked a little bit earlier in the week on extensions for potential players, in particular Jonathan Taylor and Michael Pittman Jr. I want to stay with Pitt just for this portion of the conversation. We've joked that is there really been a fair barometer for the receiver room when the quarterback play has been so bad over the last couple of years? Has the quarterback or has the wide receiver room rather really reached its ceiling? How much of that will go into the evaluation process of, well, we're not really ready to rush anything with our wide receivers because we want to make sure that they gel well with, in theory, our franchise quarterback and Anthony Richardson. There's no sense in throwing a ton of money if there's not true chemistry or a true pathway with Richardson and Pittman Jr. running side by side together. Uh, I think 100%. I think everybody would agree that last year, the offense was, I mean, in the nicest way, it was kind of broken. So it's really hard to kind of judge what the stats and the numbers that were put up in 2022 were. Now, I'm sure if you talk to Michael Pittman Jr., he's one of those guys that he's a team-first guy, and he will tell you that he didn't do his job to make the offense better. He says all the things you want him to say. But ultimately, I think everybody else can look at it and say there were a lot of moving pieces and a lot of moving parts that made the offense what it was. And it was a struggle last year. Um, and he didn't really take that next step that everybody wanted him to. But I think there was a lot of question marks as we talk about into that. So I would 100% think that that has to come into play. You can't just look at him at his, from a stat line and say, oh, well, he's not deserving because there were a lot of things that contributed into those stats. And I think ultimately this year, it's going to be a big barometer for a lot of guys, but definitely in that receiver room. And I think that tight end room where you're really going to see what you have in both those spots. We were talking about tight end Casey earlier on in the program. There are a lot of bodies now, granted, some of them aren't healthy enough to participate fully in the mini camp this week. Is there any more position? Is there another position group that's as competitive as that one in the Colts locker room? Man, that's a really good question. I mean, that's one of them that I'm going to definitely have my eyes on just because of a production standpoint. You know what you have in Jelani Woods, a guy who you're expecting to take that next step in his second year. You've got Moali Cox, who has a lot of experience. Drew Ogletree last year during camp was the darling of August until he tore his ACL and he looked like he was going to have a pretty good impact on this offense. And then you sign a guy like Farrell Brown, who's played a lot of football in the NFL. And the guy you haven't been talking really about was, you know, where's Kylan Granson going to be? Yet he has probably been the best tight end through this point in the spring. And the Colts drafted a guy in Will Mallory. So there are a lot of bodies. You are not wrong there. There are a lot of bodies fighting for ultimately three, maybe four spots. So 
So it's going to be definitely one I'm going to watch. And if you look at it from just a roster view on where the, the biggest battles are going to be, I think definitely tight end. And then I'm going to continue to talk about corner just because of you, you get rid of Brandon Faison or you, you see him go in agency, you trade Stephon Gilmore, you bring in three rookies, but there's a lot of uncertainty at corner. So that's another spot that I'm definitely going to pay attention to when August comes around, but definitely tied in. It's a lot of bodies fighting for some, you know, very small when it comes to numbers that you keep when that 53 man is set. Casey with Jonathan Taylor and his status from just the perspective of, you know, he's coming off the ankle injury and there's no real question marks there. We talked about it a little bit earlier in the show that we're not feeling this sense of, there's no really sense of dread or anticipation this week other than the anticipation for training camp. When you look at JT specifically, would it worry you at all if he's not out in some form when training camp begins? Or is this part of the process of just, hey, there's no reason to rush him back when he's ready, he's going to be ready? No, see, I wouldn't be worried just because you know what you have. And we saw last year, now he had some some other injuries that that really nagged him throughout the season. But last year, he didn't participate super often in camp. I thought last year he kind of had a little bit more of that veteran type of camp. And when he was healthy, I think he was still Jonathan Taylor. So I'm not that worried had Jonathan Taylor, you know, if he comes into camp and he's not ready to go. Now, there are some question marks like – there, there are some, I would say, kind of just you put stars on the calendar, and I think those joint practices, you'd really like to see him compete in those just because it's going to give him the best preparation for what he's going to say when, when game day rolls around. But ultimately, I don't think you're that worried just because you know what you have in JT. Ultimately, everybody else in the offense is going to make him better if they can hold up their end of the bargain because you know what Taylor can do. So a healthy Taylor goes a lot more than rushing him out there if he's not fully ready to go. Now, I would assume, now I am not, I am not in there talking to him and all of that stuff, but I would assume if the Colts played a game on Sunday, he would be suiting up. So I don't think that this ankle is anything to be super concerned about. Now, you know, we'll see what happens in August. We'll see where he is. But I'm assuming that right now it's all very, you know, just being safe, being cautious with the reason he's not out there right now. But I would assume when, when camp rolls around, you'll get more, you know, you, you'll answer that question a little bit more, I don't know, concretely and you'll really see whether or not he's going to be out there, but I wouldn't be too worried if, you know, day one at camp, Jonathan Taylor's not out there. Talks about a lot of the growth that needs to happen in some of the various position rooms, certainly new coaching staff. It's easy to look back on this season when it's done, and we're going to quantify in wins and losses what the coaching change did. That's the easiest form of measurement. But when we look at it maybe from a more, I guess, subjective standpoint, do you think, Casey, that it will be – the scheme improvement that a new staff brings in, or will it be the energy sort of attitude improvement that's going to have the biggest impact on this team this year? Oh, man, that's good. Um, I think ultimately it's going to be the scheme because I think you've already seen that energy and attitude to this point, which is expected. you got a new voice, something new. Everybody, It's kind of like you know, that first day of school in a way, if you will, right now is the vibe that you're kind of seeing within this, within this locker room. Um, but I think the scheme is going to be huge because I think – one of the things we have noticed about Shane Steichen is he likes to do a lot of different things with a lot of different players. 
Um, and you're seeing that, especially in the wide receiver room. It, it, there's a lot of guys there, but there's a lot of guys that have a different skill set. So that's kind of the thing that I'm looking at, especially from an offensive standpoint, because with Gus Bradley and that defense essentially staying the same, you're not going to have a different scheme, so it should look about the same. Now, hopefully you can add Shaquille Leonard into that mix, which should change up that defense a little bit. But offensively, the, the scheme, I think, is ultimately going to be what you're going to judge it on. But it's going to be hard because at the end of the day, you're you're trying to progress a rookie quarterback into the NFL, and it's hard to judge him after one year. Ultimately, a guy like Anthony Richardson with his little playing in at Florida, it's going to be a learning curve. So it's going to be really hard to just say, oh, the scheme doesn't work. But I do think ultimately that is going to be the biggest thing that you're going to judge this season on. Casey, you might not know the answer to this. Casey Vallier with us at the Colts Radio Network, but I've always been fascinated by it. The team meetings and mini camps, everything stop and, and go to bed these next couple of weeks, and we wait anxiously for training camp to arrive. But you see this all the time. I'm sure it happened well before this. This isn't a new thing for quarterbacks, but you see it more publicly now with social media and Anthony Richardson or Patrick Mahomes mentioning it in press conferences. Yeah, we're going to get together. We're going to go down to Florida. We're going to meet up and we're going to do more work with our wide receivers. How involved, or maybe not involved is the right word, but how does the team monitor, if at all, that aspect of it? Because I'm sure on the one hand, they like the continuity of it, but also I always think to myself, man, I mean, you'd hate for for any injuries or anything to happen when teams are getting an extra reps that can be beneficial but have a risk-reward factor to them. 100%. 100%. I mean, ultimately, you know, the team, they're on board with these guys going off and training because that's ultimately what they're telling them to do. You know, get some time away, but we you when you report to camp to be ready to go because things really jumpstart. They go really, really fast. I mean, as you know, Jimmy, you report to camp and all of a sudden you blink and you're in week five. And it's like, <laughs> what just happened? So you, you, they're there is that line where they're going to be training. So ultimately these guys are probably going to be doing what they would typically be doing training. They're just going to be doing it with their teammates. So I think that's kind of the balance that you have. Um, but 100%, it's, it's a great thing to see these guys getting together. And I mean, cause I mean, we're watching it out here. You know, you don't have Michael Pittman. You don't have Jelani Woods. You don't have Mallory. You don't have Jonathan Taylor out here taking the reps. Alec Pierce has missed some time. Josh Downs has missed some time. So building that chemistry is huge. So ultimately, that is where you want to be able to say that you took you took reps before you reported to training camp because there's a lot of you got to know each other. And that that is, you know, when you look at, you, I mean, I, I go back to your team all the time here, Jimmy, with the Chiefs. You see Patrick Mahomes and Travis Kelsey, and it's almost like they're playing backyard football just because they just know each other so well. And that is so important, getting that camaraderie and knowing kind of every step that your guys are making. That's kind of why it's so important to make sure you do this. But I'm sure there is a team aspect that you are kind of monitoring it. You're you're looking at what those workouts are going to look like so you can say, hey, maybe we don't do this. Let's gear more towards that. Sure, Casey, we've heard Anthony Richardson say the plan is to try and get together with some receivers between now and training camp to just sort of continue to get on the same page and throw and have those reps. And I'm curious, kind of building off of what you just described there, how much of that is – does that fully fall – on the hands of 
you know, players and agents sort of working that out. It's uh, there's nothing mandatory about it. It's just sort of being a good teammate type of thing. Like, I, I don't know if that's a question that's easy to answer, but like what goes into that? Like, Hey man, you just want to get together and throw it. Cause we think back to, you know, Peyton Manning and Marvin Harrison would spend so much time together, even as veterans, right. just working through the off season. It was just something that was ingrained in their work ethic, which is why the interview process, but in the pre-draft process is so important to some of these teams to kind of understand how these guys are going to tick and work. But uh, you know, how does that kind of come together? Is it just sort of organic or are there kind of little hints here and they're like, Hey, maybe you guys should get together. I think honestly, it's probably a mixture of both. Um, I, I think Michael, I think Michael, like let's say Michael Pittman jr. For example, I think for him to ha- have the most success, the quarterbacks have to be successful too. So it kind of works twofold in order to really have a year for, for you that you want to, you know, I mean, you're going into a contract year, so you want to be able to put, you know, that paper down and say, hey, look what I did here in 2023. You have to have that chemistry with the quarterback. So I think it's, I think what you said when you think about the process of drafting these guys and getting to know who they are or when you're signing free agents, you want them all to kind of have that mentality. I think that's where it comes into play big time because, you know, you might have guys that say, you know, I'm only here for this and I ain't going to work with anybody except for my trainers and all of that stuff outside of it. So it is, I think, a give and take. But I think ultimately it's probably more just, Hey, you know, I'm going to just reach out to you in a couple of weeks. You mind just getting together? I think that's kind of the way that it goes, but it is one of those things. I'm sure the team really highly encourages it because, you know, you brought up two of the guys who are pillars on the outside of this building with Peyton Manning and Marvin Harrison. They did this their entire careers. And in order to be able to hoist a Lombardi and do all of that stuff, that's kind of the stuff that comes with it. So I'm sure that is something that they're kind of throwing in their ears like, Hey, if you don't want to do this, that's fine. But just remember, this is our standard, and this is what they did. So it's it's easy to kind of give that as a fallback of, hey, this is how you get to that point. Casey, last thing on my end, I'm not going to dive into the weeds of the Isaiah Rogers situation, but obviously the likelihood of him being gone for a very long time in terms of what that league would pan down to him when a suspension in all likelihood takes place complicates things in terms of maybe the plan or the pathway for what was going to happen at cornerback with this team it takes one corner off the board in terms of a contract year for him and Kenny Moore's the the lone guy in that particular boat but when you look at what Moore brings the veteran but also knowing that okay maybe now we're left with two choices let the rookie cornerbacks we drafted get some run or potentially bring in another veteran if it was me, I'd like to have that answer of bringing a veteran done before training camp. Colts might not feel that way, but is there a once you've hit the train track, so to speak, you've gone too far moment for this team in terms of when they could bring in a veteran corner? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, it, it's a lot of people are asking that question every single day, and it's understandable. Ultimately, I mean, if you think about what this team did in the draft, they addressed corner very highly. I know they maybe not outside of you know Juju Brents with their second round pick. He used a, a couple fifth round picks on some corners, which you know that is what it is. But ultimately, I think they realized there was a need. They had to find a little bit more stability in that room because especially with Kenny Moore, this is this is the end of his contract this year. So there are a lot of question marks when you think about the future at corner. So guys like Dallas Flowers and, and Daryl Baker Jr., who have gotten a lot of run at this point with Kenny Moore, and especially with Juju Brents, there's going to be a lot asked of him. So I wouldn't be surprised if there is a veteran move made. And that's one of those things that when you look at it, the time frame here in June, you don't have to make a decision right now just because these guys are probably 
where they the, the corners that are available, there's probably a reason they're available right now. They're probably knowing that I'm going to get signed in camp or it's one of those things that when the season rolls around. So I don't think you have to make a fast move right now. Um, but I do think you've got a lot of youth that you kind of have to figure out. So I don't know if there's really that concrete answer where you know what you're going to do, and it may not be one of those things that you know early on. So it's a very slippery slope on whether or not you bring in a veteran. I think ultimately if you bring a veteran in, it's just to add depth. I don't think you're bringing somebody in here to really – ask them to be a starter when week one rolls around. So I think that's where you are. You look at it as we don't necessarily need a week one starter. So we're just kind of wait, let the waters kind of do what they do when August rolls around and then make a move if you need it. Casey Vallier, we'll hear him all fall long on the Colts radio broadcast. Casey, thanks for the time. Uh, I promise I'll read as much content as possible today and tomorrow. Well, I, I appreciate it. And, Will, I know you're probably as busy as anybody with all this golf stuff going around. Man, your your world's been a little a little off, huh? I have no idea what Something you're talking happened? about. I, I have no idea what you're, no <laughs> idea what you're talking about. You don't know about. any of this? No, no. Sorry. I'll have to, I'll have to Google that as well. Thanks, oh. Casey. Appreciate you. Thank you, guys. Appreciate Thanks, Casey. it. That's Casey Vallier. Um, yeah, I mean, Look, a lot of good stuff there. I appreciated the the insight in some of those things, and these guys continue to work. But I think he kind of echoed a lot of the sentiment that we had in the first part of the show. Is just things are are good right now. They're good in the in the makeup of what this team is, and us having a reset of expectations. And I I don't think I'm speaking for all the fans out there, but I think we recognize that something just sort of needed to be done and and reset and recalibrated in terms of what we expect out of this team. And that may have driven some people away. I understand that for those who are out and about and listening today. And they're like, well, I want this team to win a Super Bowl. Well, we all want that team to win a Super Bowl. But the path to that had to probably take a different course. And now that road's a little bit longer. And we've arrived at a place where, I I don't know, I'm not happier as a Colts fan than I would be being, say, a Bills fan today. I still think the Bills have a great chance of winning a Super Bowl because of what they have under center. But it's nice to not have the public discourse of discontent that is going on up there. It is not it's okay to not have a number of different places where people are questioning like who's gonna be the starter and what's going on here. Like we don't know, and that's okay. And it's just kind of a weird vibe to be in, but we're all just like, All right, yeah. Yeah, let's see what this cold season is. I'm I'm optimistic. I don't know, or Maybe I'm numb. Maybe it's a numb optimism. I don't know. But it's I don't feel like any of us are sitting here like, oh, there's major concern or there's something that we should really be getting fired up about. It's like, let these guys figure it out. And it sounds like that there is a an attitude in the facility that is trickling down to the players that gives them sort of a calm workman's like pathway forward to be the best that they could potentially be and that's all you can ask for with where we're at on june 14th at this point in the offseason i do want to go back to what casey had mentioned about the cornerback room and, and that provides a little bit of clarity for me because if you're not looking for a veteran to be a starter then the names that i've rattled off are, are not going to be in play because the names that i rattled off are likely corners that don't want to be just a voice they want to have a starting spot one thing i want to bring up though uh shout out to josh whitson who writes in on twitter he asked me this i wasn't going to bring it up for the reason I'm about to say, unless someone asked me about it. said, didn't the Chiefs start two rookie corners in the Super Bowl? I know it's not ideal, but it seemed to work out for them. Well, two things. First, and maybe Juju Brents can be this, when the Chiefs got Trent McDuffie out of Washington last year, they used a first-round pick on him. So that's the second one. And then you struck lightning in a bottle, at least in terms of filling a role 
with a seventh round selection and Jalen Watson, who ended up being a starting corner for you in valuable minutes. The key piece to all this, and this is why I downplay the other positions to a fault at times, is that you have key pieces already around your defense that are anchors like Chris Jones, like at the time, Frank Clark. And oh, by the way, you have the best quarterback on the planet under center helping you stay in games, taking a little bit of pressure off what your defense needs to do. It's great. It worked out for Kansas City. They have adopted a model a lot of teams have, which is we're not going to spend a ton of money on corner. We are going to find high value in the draft, bring in a veteran or two. And that's what you have the luxury to do when you have figured out the answer at quarterback. Right now, the Colts don't have that luxury to be able to just plug and play rookies, and they shouldn't. They should be trying to find value in the veteran market if needed. Long story short, that's not a great example because Kansas City has it all figured out everywhere else to the point that they can take a first-round cornerback and then find value elsewhere. It's the one defensive position, cornerback for the Colts, that I I, I don't think we've ever really truly felt like, wow, that's the position of strength of this defense. And what Stephon Gilmore provided last year from a veteran presence was great. And again, his presence was there for a team that had significantly higher expectations of success. So jettisoning him for a draft pick made a ton of sense in the offseason because, again, you're not the one defensive piece away. You didn't need that one cornerback who really only six times a year you needed to go out on an island and give you that one game against that one guy. Sure. Now you just need your the trenches where you've invested heavily on both sides of the football to step up and do what they're going to do. Your track record of developing speed, rangy, um, menacing linebackers need to stand up. And so your front seven or eight, especially when you drop down some of the ball hawking members of the safety crew that you have into that, has sort of rendered that position to be just bend, don't break. If all of a sudden something has happened to where we have allowed a guy to throw downfield in one-on-one coverage at a cornerback, we just need you to go up there and defend some 50-50 balls and keep the guys in front of you and let the rest of our defense, which is going to smother the run, which is going to, if it smothers the run, the run, put guys in a position where your linebackers can now help in coverage and you get pressure to it. They don't necessarily need the corners to do what they do. Now, new system, and again, somewhat some naivete from my standpoint, understanding the system is looking at it and saying, okay, well, everybody tells me that this team has to have cornerbacks that are a little bit more locked down than the old days of the cover two when you had guys getting a lot of support over the top. If that's the case, then maybe we'll see this unit struggle this season if we leave a lot of young guys out on an island. But at the same point in time, you've invested in places on this defense to where the participation or the need of having multiple veteran lockdown types on the edge shouldn't come into play very often, especially for a team that's looking long game and not short game where you need one win or one stop against an elite wide out, you know, a couple of times a year. That's your difference maker. That's your, your, your seesaw point of success or not. There is an area on the defense that provides I don't want to say concern, but it provides intrigue to me that I want to get into, but I know we're up against it here. Sure. And I know we also want to have our our famed burger battle at some point, too. But there is a serious conversation about how short up this defense really is and whether it's going to match up with the development of Anthony Richardson. Yeah. Okay. Holes in the Colts roster that we're not going to fix in minicamp, but maybe we can fix right here hypothetically. Plus, uh, more and more superstar guards in the NBA on the block. Pacers won't be shoppers, but it could obviously impact what the week looks like next week. And 
there's a big sports event in California this week, which always brings up the never-ending in-and-out debate. Reverse boycott at the A's game? Of burgers. No? We're going to finally get okay. into this. We're okay. going to settle this once and for all. Coming up next. It is the Fan Midday Show. Breaking news. Indy Star just got, came across the old Twitter machine here. Fisher's building a two-lane roundabout at 96th and Allisonville that will replace the unpopular Michigan left turn at the intersection. I mean, I love me the roundabout. It keeps things moving. Same. It's safety. Anybody that's anti-roundabout, it's that's a get-off-my-lawn take that I'm just not old enough to have at this juncture. I love the Michigan left, though, because I've traveled so much. I don't love it. I understand it because I've traveled so much through Michigan through the years that once you've seen it, you're like, oh, okay, I know what to do here. But it was so foreign and alien to put into a major thoroughfare in Indianapolis that I'm not surprised today to see that the roundabout will officially replace the Michigan left at 96 and Allison. So those of you who might be driving right now on the northeast side, uh, don't go roundabout in the thing. They haven't built it yet. they got to build it. You still have to do the Michigan left until they build the actual Since roundabout. we've reached the portion of the show where we're criticizing the way things are from a road standpoint, and we don't have any sponsors from, at least to my knowledge, the uh, fine folks in the Indian Department of Tra- Transportation, just in case they do. But there was a lot of work being done on Meridian at 96th, and it was down to one lane at one point in wow. time. And there was I, all these all these cones. I got stuck in that last week. All the cones are now gone, and there's no improvement on the road. Like I don't know if this is a pause and we're re like zooming things, but like it's very bumpy ride. I'm very confused. Median replacement, maybe. I have no Just idea. Six. Not a good time to be in dot with them closing 465 over here. Infrastructure. Yikes. It's you know what. There's been a lot of infrastructure improvement, a lot of injection of cash into infrastructure work, and so that infrastructure work is all happening at the same time. It's hard sometimes to be patient with the, it's going to be great at the end. Like, I drove down here today, drove to the airport last week to go to work, and finally, you know, I'm now able to go back through the city. I don't have to go around 465. I can go through the city again, which is so much nicer as someone who lives on the northeast side to go to the airport that way. It took a while to get there. We finally got there. But if any of you live out in the Fishers, Lawrence, Geist sort of area, I mean, Fall Creek shut down because of a bridge repair, 82nd Street, you can't get off of at 69 because the 69 project has begun. I mean, if you want to get somewhere out there, there is one way or two ways only where you used to have three or four ways to get there, and it is, it's maddening right now. I'll tell you one thing, it, though. It's going to be so smooth when it's done. It will be, but... About the time of the second U.S. Open at L.A. Country Club in 2039. If you're going north, that express lane, whew. Nice. Oh, it is nice. I enjoy that. Yeah, the I express do. lane's it's great. It takes me back to my time in Chicago, even though I think heard they don't have that anymore. But anyway. Speaking of LA Country Club, it is an annual tradition anytime any sporting event goes to the West Coast or goes to Los Angeles and you are out there covering it and someone says, hey, are you going to go to In-N-Out Burger? Which is exactly what we were talking about before the show. So I don't even know how we got on the topic. It's like, I oh, it's in LA. You, have some in and out for me. Have some in Because oh, you thought I was going to LA. Branch. I am working remotely this week. I'm not going to Los Angeles sure. to cover the US Open. So I'm working remotely. And you were like, have some in and out. And I was like, no, I'm not going to go there. It's the most overrated burger chain going, which then led to a very spirited debate about what makes an overrated or underrated burger place. And this is the problem with the great burger debate is that we have too many burgers from a variety of different price points and experiences that enter the fray to have the conversation of what's the best burger. Like if I walked downtown right now and said, let's have the best filet mignon argument, and I put an Outback Steakhouse filet up against 
Ruth's Chris or St. Elmo's, like that's just an unfair conversation to have on that one. So I don't, so this is where like we have to go to tears on burgers on this one. But yes, I do believe that in and out is an overrated burger experience. I need elaboration on that. And and please more than just, well, everybody says it's good and it's oversold. Like it needs, I need That's, something from the experience. That, that is that, obviously a part of it. It is a portion, but to me, when you say overrated, it means you went there and eh. Yeah, it's fine. I mean, compared to other burger restaurants where I can drive my car through a lane and someone will hand me a burger that I can eat, I would rather have a Wendy's cheeseburger. I would. I can't. I can't go that far down the. Total it's a pole. nice big square piece of real meat. Like you can see that it is actual beef. Like the In and Out thing. It's. I would say, and this could be sacrilegious for the In and Out people out there. An In and Out burger to me is closer to like a McDonald's cheeseburger of bun to meat to stuff on it ratio compared to a Wendy's burger that to me is more beef flavor forward. Well, if we're really in the weeds here, I would take McDonald's over Wendy's six ways a Sunday. Well, but you had a bad experience. No, Wendy's. I mean, I just you can't. There's a large, there's a large portion of people that really enjoy a good McDonald's cheeseburger. Uh, Give me a double quarter pounder with cheese. I don't again. I don't have a pro. I like the McDonald's. In and out three ninety five. You get a double double, two cheese slices on a toasted bun, patties, onion, lettuce. They're spread tomatoes. Like you're not going to beat a value. And the taste factor as well. I in went one spot. to In and Out in Vegas last fall, my last day in there doing the tournament. And again, it wasn't bad. It just was it's not painful. worth the time where I could have gone. It's I like, love burgers across okay, the board, by the way. Like, just to be clear. Chick fil A is phenomenal, right? The oh, line careful, is careful. The, the line is around the door. Depends on where you go. Nowadays, it's it's efficient. You're in and out of there. Oh, okay. Well, most places I go to, they it's like you, you got to wait. IPads. You got to take a number. You know, typically you got to come back the next day. You know, because it's you know there's 30 cars that are in I'm there. I'm speaking through the so drive-through. I'm saying I don't go through the horrors of what you're talking about, which is trying to get service inside. No, no, I'm not trying to get service inside. I'm, I'm I was making a joke. Through. I was making a joke. I feel like I got to like do a blood test and a whole bunch of other stuff just to get through the line. It's a, it takes a long time. The food is delicious. It's worth the wait if you have the time. But if I just want a really good crispy chicken sandwich, I can find a place with a shorter line. So to my thing with the in and out is what are you providing me that is so legendary? And so, again, I've had a lot of people who live on the West Coast who will do the in and out is superior to five guys, which is like the East Coast burger place. And to me, that's a completely separate burger experience. I think five guys is superior in so many different ways. The number of things you can put on the burger, the size of the meat, the quality control, but that's not a drive through restaurant. You got to go in, you got to order. That feels like it's the next tier up. So your separation is once you cross threshold to indoor dining, it's a different. Right. Battle. So I guess my thing is when people say that in and out is the greatest thing ever, is it in comparison to the other drive through fast food burger places i mean for me when i think of burgers that separate themselves from the pack non-dinner experience non-like five-star restaurant experience i think of in and out i think of shake shack and i think of five guys i can drop that's their own that that's their own little tier but i can drop a hundred at shake shack with my family of four and again that's why i'm throwing in the bang for your buck that you're getting at in and out is far more efficient than any of these other places and the quality is just as good if not better all right is bring your son to work day my 12-year-old 
son Hudson is here. If he says Hardee's, I'm leaving. Yeah, where are we where are we at on the where are we at on the burger <laughs> debate here? Like, what's the best what's the best burger out there? You've never had an In and Out though, because have you had an In and Out when you go to, went to California? No, I have never had <clears throat> In and Out, but I do think with I'm on my dad's side with like Wendy's. Mm. Wendy's just has a really good just feels it feels right it's hard to have the in and out debate when you haven't had the in and out but it does it feels right it's a good burger but you would have five guys before wendy's what do you think makes the best fast food burger like what do you want in your burger what what when you're like i'm biting into this as a connoisseur of junk food like what do you want that burger to taste like what's the immediate flavor you're looking for in a burger definitely shake shack it's just overpriced oh well okay so you want that you want that big quality burger experience i like that so that's what I'm saying, though. It's like, but if I go to a Wendy's, I feel like I'm getting more bang for my beef buck. I don't know how you can, like, if you got a, just a regular cheeseburger at In-N-Out, I get it. But if you're getting a double-double with two beef patties, like, I don't know how you're coming away from that saying, I didn't, I wasn't filled to my stomach. Oh, I did not I enjoy the experience. Like, you just, you're, you're, it feels like it's being framed as you're getting more bang for your buck from beef from Wendy's when, again, a double-double, I just... Like, look, I, I like Shake Shack just as much as I do in and out I don't have, like, a clear front runner in that debate. I enjoy all burgers, but when I'm out there in the West Coast and I'm looking for something efficient, delicious, and consumer-friendly, it's, it's in and out Where not. would you compare Culver's and their butter burgers Ooh, to In-N-Out? Ooh, the Culver's butter Culver's burger. Different. Culver's is different. But you got you get the high-quality ice cream, though, that yeah. comes with the Culver's experience. Custard. Yeah, custard. custard. Thank you. Custard. And again, that's where we blur the lines a little bit, because if you're throwing ice cream into the situation, or French fries, for example, like, this might be sacrilege to West Coasters. I don't like In-N-Out's fries. I think they're, they they don't have enough flavor for me. I agree. I, 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 I that would, should be factored into this conversation. But not if we're just talking burgers. Because that's why I said the burger, burger price. Three ninety five for a burger. That's it. If you want to go into the room of French fries, like, I could eat days on end of Five Guys Fries. The crinkle cut look at Shake Shack is divine, but then you get into the price point side of things. So it all depends on what you want out of your burger experience. If you are looking for, I think, best value, high quality burger, it's in and out. It's not close for me. Did you ever have a friend that dipped their fries in the Frosties at Wendy's? Yes. yes. God, that's a thing, isn't mm-hmm. it? How is that a thing? It's rather good. No, it's not. It is indeed. I've done it before. Chocolate know, ice cream. I, I don't on go get the burgers anymore, but I've had a frosty. On a fry? Oh, we've lost our way. Speaking of good value, would it be good value to trade for Bradley Beal? We'll discuss as we get back to sports next. <laughs> it's the Fan Midday Show here on 93.5107.5. The Fan, Eddie Cook. Eddie like, Cook. You're close. Jimmy Cook, Eddie Garrison. So well. Will we've Haskett. now gotten Gosh, every host at least once. Golly. Well, we were laughing too much going into it. I'm sorry it's about like we're, that. It's like we're, we're trying to break up perfect games left and right. We finally did it. It is unprofessional. We finally did it. And it's not even names. It's just like forgetting about you or... It's okay. Yeah. I was looking at Eddie when I was trying to say... Well, you know, you know how it goes. Uh, Bradley Beal now has the cooperation of his own front office for the Washington Wizards to perhaps move him. He's only one year into a five-year, $251 million contract, and he also has a full no-trade clause, which means anything that's negotiated he would have to sign off of. The silly season in the NBA this offseason, which could ramp up, and we'll talk to Alex Golden coming up here at the top of the next hour, so 10 minutes from right now. Jimmy, the silly season has almost jumped the shark. Like we have gotten to the place now where it's Kyrie's telling LeBron to come to Dallas when no one else is really necessarily on board with that. Uh, you know, is 
Damian Lillard going to be on his way out before next week? There's been some rumblings about Miami as a potential destination, but how on earth do you make that trade? It's the most of? open Dame's been about being traded in his entire career. So, right. so but it he wa- that's me a the only bit. one he wants to go to, yeah. right? So if that, that you run into the scenario of kind of Aaron Rodgers to the Jets, right? If all of these situations aren't necessarily motivated, you have to have two parties. The reason why the big three worked first for Boston and then for Miami, the way that those were constructed is that you had players who had all of the power from a pure free agency standpoint, coupled with assets and reasons to sort of combine forces and make these things happen. When you pigeonhole yourself into one particular outcome and you go on McAfee's show and say, I'm going to the Jets, that's who I've picked, but hey, listen, the sides haven't agreed upon it. There's just, there's no, A, there's no then immediate incentive for the sides to get it done, and B, there's no incentive for either side to necessarily do right by the other and try and make it the best sort of thing. So do I think both Bradley Beal and Damian Lillard play on different teams next year? What, 20% chance that both of those sort of happen? Do I believe that them going about it the way, and this is not knocking on Damian Lillard or even necessarily Bradley Beal, but do I think them sort of saying like, look, I'm going to fully pick and choose or this is my only sort of place helps in their pursuit of getting out? Absolutely not. I don't. Damian Lillard does not have a no trade clause, so he can say whatever he wants, but regrettably for him, you he doesn't do have right, the power. You no, no, kind of want to do right To be by clear, him. Yeah. I, I think they should. That's not, that was not what I was going for. Right, I was right. trying to outline the difference in scenarios. I got it. Beal can dictate terms because he has that no trade clause, but also Bradley Beal, whose contract... The more games he misses season by season, you know, this is the first year in this extension. His entirety of time in Washington has felt yep. like a missed opportunity. Bradley Beal hasn't played in a full season since Hudson was in third grade. Did some quick math there, bringing him back into the wow. show. And I wouldn't want that contract anywhere near my books. If I'm anybody, if I'm the Pacers, if I am a contender like the the Heat or the Lakers, like I'm not touching that any way, shape, or form because he's not shown since 2018 that he has the ability to play a full season and he's making full season franchise level money. The other funny thing about Bradley Beal, and this is not his fault, it's Nike's fault. About a decade ago, Nike ran a large campaign on different playoff performers or potential playoff performers that were either under contract with them or or had deals with them. And they were highlighting like LeBron James looking for back-to-back titles. Kevin Durant looking for his first. Bradley Beal, he's not ready to wait. That was the actual (laughs) campaign for Bradley Beal in his second year. He's been waiting a very long time. I'm not bringing him into my franchise. Not because I don't don't think he's a good player. The money makes zero sense for the amount of games he's put forth over the last four seasons. This is where I think the NBA's hurt themselves a little bit with these guaranteed contracts for guys that make first team or whatever. Again... Does Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum's performances over the last couple of years warrant them being first team All NBA and second team All NBA? Absolutely. Does it warrant them being paid in such a way that they have to be such an alpha on a team to make it work cap wise that they can sustain in that role? Tatum, yes. Jalen Brown, probably not, which is why Boston probably has some question marks this offseason. You see the extension that Bradley Beal gets in Washington. And it's like, look, you can't build strictly around that contract and have enough pieces and enough flexibility over the course of that contract to give yourself really the wiggle room, which is why 
you know, they're just stuck in absolute contract purgatory with that one for Washington. The Portland one is so interesting to me because it's very wishy-washy in their feelings. And again, we're going to talk to Alex Golden about this a little bit, but there's a new mock draft up on ESPN.com and there's a little bit more maybe buzz that's hinting that Scoot Henderson could end up being the pick at two for Charlotte. They kept Brandon Miller in the most recent mock draft there, but I guess a really good workout in Charlotte by Scoot Henderson, which means if Brandon Miller is falling to three, which I think is a more enticing player for a lot of teams in the first dozen picks or so of the draft, and we know that Portland, depending on which way they want to go, do they want to invest in that pick and find a way to move Dame, or do they want to move the pick to try and help Dame win right now? I believe a scenario where both players – and that second tier are viable in the third pick gives you a little bit more opportunity to see that pick moved, whether it's the Pacers or anybody else that tries to go up and get there. I don't know, but I think that it's a, it's a fascinating situation right now because I think Portland's going to end up holding a lot of different keys to the future and direction of not only their own franchise, but a number of franchises going into the draft next week. Portland doing the latter, which would be trying to continue to build a championship contender around Damian Lillard is a fool's errand. I love Damian Lillard. I think he's one of the most electric players in the NBA, has been for a long time. I've wanted him to get out of Portland, not because, again, I think they're a poorly run franchise, but because they've they've been good or or solid at the wrong time when you have other contending front-running teams in that conference that are just better than you are. Oklahoma City had a run there way back when, if we're looking back a decade with, with Kevin Durant. Golden State has dominated the conference. You've seen the Lakers have a run there as well. And Portland's been close, but but never really truly sniffing it. it, it, it this era's over. It's time to, if Damian Lillard is willing to leave or is willing to be traded, even though he doesn't have a trade clause and you want to do right by him, now is the time. Take somebody with your draft pick, build towards the future, maybe get some draft capital or assets from Damian Lillard, and press the reset button. Even with Damian Lillard last year, you won 33 games. Nobody is going to give you anything significant with your pick to improve that number to a point where you're a serious contender next year. Yeah, and who and who knows what even it would take to move to that sort of spot. We'll talk about that and more draft day approaching Alex Golden next. In the drivehubler.com studio, final hour here on the Midday Show. Jimmy Cook, will ask it with you. Eddie Garrison here. My son Hudson here as well. We'll get a th- thoughts on drink of choice coming up later in this hour. He's got two wins today already. Yeah, he's just cruising on whatever that new baseball game is on the phone over there he's winning more games than my cubs seem to be here in the month of june all right it is eight days from now all of our off-season questions will be answered yes the hype is real we will arrive at nba draft night will the pacers pick at seven will they move up who will they pick all of these questions lingering in my brain so i'm excited to talk with our next guest you know him from setting the pace and all of his great pacers coverage he's alex golden hi alex how are you Hey, well, I'm doing good, man. How are you? Great, thank you. Um, I don't really know which way to go with this. We were just talking a little bit of mock draft in the end of the last segment and just kind of where things go. We finally have had the Pacers bringing in various bodies that would probably fit at number seven. I would assume at this juncture that it is a very, very high probability that the Pacers pick at seven. Crazier things can sort of happen. But now that we've started to see more and more guys through the workouts, is there one – 
And I don't really know what you can take away from information gleaned from the workouts, but is there one where you just sort of felt like there was an energy or a buzz around that that would be the ideal situation at seven if he were to fall there? Yeah, I, I think that if you look at who they brought in, uh, Jairus Walker, Taylor Hendricks, and Cam Whitmore are the most likely people to, to be there. Cam Whitmore, to me, I don't think he's going to fall to seven. I think he's going to be a top five pick. So that's where I'm a little bit like, okay, I'm not really counting on him. And based on Jonathan Gavoni's uh, reporting today and his latest mock draft, it appears the Pacers have, you know, re- they're really interested in Walker and Hendricks. But he also threw in a Sar Thompson from the overtime elite. And that is someone that I think could be a nice fit uh, as well. It's a little bit of a project, a little bit of an unknown right there because the overtime elite is not something we're uh, as familiar with. But a lot of people like his game and the upside there. So it's just interesting to me that his name was linked to the Pacers a few different times in this mock draft. So I uh, they didn't have him mock there. I think it was Jairus Walker was who they mocked. But uh, it'll be interesting to see which way they go because I think those are probably the three to four names that I'm looking at for the Pacers there. Alex, with the uniqueness of the NBA, it's not unique to you and I, but for those that are following so many different sports all at once, sometimes you can get lost in the weeds of, oh, well, free agency is here for the NFL. Oh, wait, it's after the draft for the NBA? That's weird. If if you're not used to it, you and I obviously are. When you examine the back and forth of best available versus biggest need for the team with what they could potentially do at seven, how much of that at all has maybe changed your evaluation or made you think twice about what they might do because of what is available in this year's free agency class and the amount of cap space the Pacers have to work with? Yeah, so when it comes to the Pacers, like if you're looking at free agents, they don't usually land a lot of them. So I never really base what the Pacers should do in the draft or that kind of thing. Uh, I should I should rephrase that. I should rephrase that. I don't okay. mean to cut across you, Alex, but I, you and I both know that, right? That's not a big market. I just yeah. mean in terms of like the more value guys they could find to fill needs. We all know they need a wing that can defend, that can also be efficient from beyond the arc, but perhaps there's somebody really enticing within the draft Take, for example, Anthony Black, who might not fit that exact role, but would be a best available type of guy that, okay, we can find a need for a good money value makes sense veteran in free agency. I'm not talking about, obviously, top level. You know what I mean? I'm not talking about Kyrie or anybody like that. No, and I I get what you're saying, because there are guys that could be had, like, just look at what Denver did last year by getting Bruce Brown, right? Somebody like that that could come in and, you know, make sense. Um, With this year's free agency class, I don't know if there's a lot that uh, really sticks out to me. I feel like the Pacers' best avenue to even add depth on their on their roster is through the trade market. Uh, there are some free, there are some uh, players in this draft that I actually do think would be very interesting in the later part of the draft that could maybe fit a role. But uh, once again, you don't really expect rookies to come and have a huge impact like we saw last year. Like that's an anomaly when you have Andrew Nimhart and Benedict Mather and do what they did. So, yeah, I think with where the paces are at, they've got a crowded roster already. So finding guys on the edges in free agency is very possible. But I also don't think it's something that's going to like – I don't know what guys are out there that make a ton of sense. I mean, I've looked at some of the names on like the, the more the average role player type guys. And the biggest thing you don't want to get yourself into is overpaying for somebody – that is going to end up not being able to produce with what they were able to do previously in the, in the year before. Someone that had a good playoff run that, you know, we don't want them to – we don't want the Pacers to overpay somebody 
that had a good playoff run that it might just be a one-time thing. So I think – I hope I'm answering this question uh, to the best of my ability of what you're asking me. Uh, and I, I just feel like I can't think of anybody. Like Trey Lyles is a name that I thought about with his run with Sacramento. Like he had a really good year. But like guys like that, I, I think you can kind of wait to get that. And you might be able to address those situations in the draft as well considering all the picks that they have. Alex, when you look at all of the various smoke of rumors and reports out there, some teams, will it be veteran players they want to move? Is it acquisition of, of veteran talent to make some contenders better? Do the Pacers have what it takes to just sort of be the beneficiary of a team that's maybe either reaching or desperate to make a move out there? And if so, is it the draft picks themselves or current talent on the roster that would make them more likely to try and hop in and facilitate with a, a team that maybe is desperate to make whatever that move might be. I know that's a broad you know, hypothetical and things that are out there, but I'm just kind of curious as to what we know they would love to get out of some of the late first-round picks. That makes a lot of sense, but it makes too much sense to say they're going to get incredible value out of it. I, I guess my question is if someone's really wanting to make a move, if Portland's really all in on trying to help Damian Lillard, which we were talking about, and the Pacers are sitting there at seven or with other pieces, I, I don't know, like do they really have what could help both teams? Could there be a beneficial move forward for some desperate program out, a desperate franchise out there if the Pacers were to hop in and help facilitate something? Yeah, so I, I think the Pacers are in a spot right now where their roster is okay, but I think people that are fans especially, they do overvalue some of the players on this roster a little bit. Like Miles Turner is a very good center, but he's not going to be able to get you pick number three with the Portland Trailblazers. I hate to break it to you, but it's going to take a bunch of stuff. And I think if the Pacers are to move up in this draft, they're going to have to get a third team involved. They just don't have the players that these teams want in terms of, hey, we're trying to win now. Let's poach some players off the Pacers. Well, it's like, yeah, you could do that, but you're not really, to me personally, you're not going to be able to get uh, a veteran on this team that's really going to help move the needle that much. Now, if you're talking about a team like maybe they want Matherin, like you're not you're not trading Matherin, you're not trading Halliburton. Uh, you can make a case for Nimhart either way. I can see it, but you know Nimhart, how much is he moving the needle for teams? He's probably not moving it at all. So I think for me personally, you know the Pacers are more in a situation where hey, if a team's desperate and they want to get involved as like a third team to try to help facilitate something and maybe pick up an additional asset later down the road or even in the draft class. That, to me, is the path that I could see them doing. But in terms of, like, moving up to, like, two or three, like there's been rumors and smoke about the Pacers being really interested in moving up in the draft, I, I personally feel like they're going to have to trade. Uh, they're going to have to get another team involved to do that, uh, specifically with Portland, with Charlotte. And they're wanting to kind of take a couple steps back and continue to rebuild, well, they should just stay at two and not trade for more picks. So, I, I honestly just don't really see a scenario where the Pacers have what it takes to move up, but I think they could be a, a third team in there kind of helping facilitate a trade, similar to what they did a couple of years ago when the Brooklyn Nets acquired James Harden from Houston and the Pacers were able to get in there and steal Karis Levert away for that season. Alex Golden with us of Setting the Pace here on the Fan Midday Show. When you examine each prospect that's in that five to seven range, Alex, or you'll even go five to eight range just for the sake of argument to expand that player pool, and you look at the idea of best available versus a clear need, is there anybody in that range that 
Like, for example, I know I mentioned him once before already, but if they were to go someone like Anthony Black, who might be just as ball-dominant as Tyrese Halliburton, is that something that could still work? Or are they better to go for somebody like, you mentioned Jairus Walker or Cam Whitmore, that would fill a clear need for what this team wants to be moving forward? Well, what I think is really nice is, like, the guys that are in their range also kind of fit a position of need. So you can kind of, uh, you know, kill two birds with one stone in that situation. For Anthony Black, it's interesting because I do really like Anthony Black as a prospect. I think he's a very talented guard. Uh, Probably the second best guard in in this draft. I mean, point guard-wise, if you're looking at someone like that. You can make the case for a man Thompson, but I think he could – I think those two are closer than people realize. Uh, for me, especially because of the shot from Amin Thompson. But I, I really do think that the reason why I'm not sold that they would take him, uh, uh, Anthony Black is because they haven't brought him in for an individual workout. He's not been linked to the team whatsoever. And the position's kind of already filled. I think he's a very similar type of player to an Andrew Nimhard uh, with his defensive upside and that kind of thing. So overall for me, I think that if I'm looking at best fit, and best player available, I would say the best fit to me right now is Taylor Hendricks. I know a lot of people have been hitting the table for Jarrett Walker, and I might be in the minority here when I say Taylor Hendricks, but that's just who I believe in uh, for the Pacers as, as in terms of the best fit. And when I say best talent, this is me talking ceiling and, and what I think they could potentially become. Uh, I don't believe Cam Whitmore is going to be in that in that range. I think he's going to go probably four or five. But I do believe in Asar Thompson. I really do think he's going to end up being a special player. And knowing that the Pacers were very intrigued last year with the idea of Shaden Sharp, and he was kind of an unknown prospect as well, I, I think that just getting guys in here with a lot of talent makes a lot of sense. So if Asar Thompson hits, like, yeah, you're talking potentially a top four guy in this draft if he hits his ceiling, and that's where I'm at with it. So I think he's the best talent, but I think that Hendricks is the best fit. And I think Walker is right there, just a smidge below Hendricks for me for best fit, but it's very, very close. Alex, I think we're so optimistic about next week for the Pacers because, like we've mentioned, there's a lot of fit at where they're going to be drafting because they have the resources to be flexible and make moves or at least just sort of redo or reshape their roster or or build their roster through this sort of draft. And so because of that, I think, again, the probabilities are very high that they're going to have a successful week next week just because that's kind of how it plays out. So I I want to go the other direction, and I don't mean to be the the downer in all of this, but (laughs) give me a worst-case scenario draft night for the Pacers next week? Oh, that's a good one. Uh, maybe trading back with a team thinking you could get the guy you want and then someone goes ahead of him. Like, let's just say they, they convince themselves to trade back and then they're bringing this guy in to work out tomorrow, uh, Grady Dick. I, I think Grady Dick's actually a, a good offensive player and could be a nice fit with the Pacers. But if you're looking at number seven, he doesn't really scream to me like, this is a guy that's got a ton of potential. So, uh, not, I shouldn't say kind of potential. I should say the ceiling's not maybe as high in terms of maybe reaching all-star level. I think he's going to be a great role player in the NBA, which there's nothing wrong with that. But at seven, you're probably aiming for a little bit higher than that. And at least I would be if I'm the Pacers because you're not in the spot very often. So even if they stayed at seven, if they somehow convinced themselves that Grady Dick's the right pick at seven, I think that would be a massive reach. And that would be a bad <laughs> uh, worst-case scenario. And I also think if they don't find a way to trade those draft picks that they've got and move up into the you know back or the middle of the first round we already know they got 26 29 and 32 i think it would be very uh 
disappointing if we didn't see them try to be aggressive and move up into the middle of the the draft. I've I've heard a lot of Laker fans put this out on social media, and they've actually contacted me in my uh, on my Twitter DMs saying, "Would the Pacers be willing to you know trade twenty six and twenty nine for seventeen? And I'm like, "Well, that makes a ton of sense to me. Yeah, I mean, why would the Lakers do it? But but the way the cap is, and it would allow the Lakers to get two first round picks with a minimum co- or you know minimal salary compared to what they're going to be paying the guys they want to bring in. So it does make some sense for them to get some more depth on the roster. But that's kind of where I'm at. I just think if they don't find a way to consolidate their picks and if they ended up taking Grady Dick at seven, that would be the worst-case scenario. Alex, I realize we're playing the long game here, but I want to go back to Taylor Hendricks, the power forward slash center, depending on how you're utilizing him out of UCF. Miles Turner might very well not be here by the time he's actually hitting where he wants to be uh, in, in terms of Taylor Hendricks. But why would a pick like that work if they were to continue Miles, let's say, for the next five years? Why would a pick like that work where, even though he's not quite as big as DeMontis Sabonis, he stretches the floor the same way, and that was a, a major headache and point of contention among the fan base? Why would that work, or is this a move that ultimately supplants Turner by the time Hendricks is at the height of his powers? No, I actually think that Taylor Hendricks is a better fit next to Miles than a Jarris Walker uh, because of the shooting ability. Taylor Hendricks shot about 39%, 40% from three last year, if I'm not mistaken. He's six foot nine, got a pretty long wingspan. And I think he can, yeah, he can play small ball five at times, but I also think he can guard threes as well as fours. So you don't have to worry about that. And, you know, one thing that we've talked about on the podcast a lot is, when the Pacers tried to play double bigs last year at the beginning of the season with Jalen Smith out there next to Miles, teams started realizing, okay, we can play our centers on Jalen Smith and put our fours on Miles Turner, which was the same case with Sabonis. And that's when you saw Turner not have as effective of games when he was guarded by fours because they're a little bit quicker and able to kind of, you know, take advantage of his strengths and then kind of limit those. So I think when you have Hendricks out there, his shooting ability – I believe it's going to translate. Obviously, we don't know. But assuming it translates from what he showed in college to the NBA, that to me is where you're like, okay, we got to be honest with him. We know we can take guys off the dribble, too. And he's a, actually a decent passer. Didn't showcase it as much as a Jarvis Walker. But if you go look at some of the clips, he is very smart. High basketball IQ makes the right play. So I think that there's a good fit there just because they can play off of each other. And – one thing that we like about both Hendricks and Walker is they can be secondary rim protectors to Miles Turner, which keeps him from having to be the one guy defending the rim. I think putting them next to each other, you got two guys that can actually protect the rim, where as Sabonis was not that guy. That was kind of the upside with Jalen Smith last year. It was like you have the secondary rim protector, but the shooting did not translate. He was a, a, an abysmal shooter from outside. So uh, putting Neesmith in when him shooting well really helped the offense, but defensively it also hurt a little bit uh, in certain areas. So, I think Hendricks can kind of come in and do that if he's able to hit that three-point shot and uh, just just continue to grab. When you're a rookie and you're coming in, it's going to be difficult to Alex Golden from Setting the Pace is with us. Alex, what current pacer is watching next Thursday with the most interest? In terms of <laughs> what, in terms of like just excitement to play with them, or maybe go, not go, on the go, go, the most interest. So it could be in either direction. Like which pacer is the most excited, or not excited? Which pacer is the most invested in watching the draft next week? I mean, I say Tyrese Halliburton because 
this is, you know, who they're building in with in this future. If we're going positive route, if we're going negative route, I'll, I'll do both here just to make it easy. I think Chris Duarte has got to be keeping his eye on things because if they draft another player to play in the same kind of position, uh, two in that three spot, well, that could mean the writing's on the wall for him with them already getting them hard and matter in last year. So, you know, wish him nothing but the best, but that, that would be probably the two I think are the most interested in what the Patriots do. Only eight days away, Alex. All of the answers to all of our questions will be answered eight <laughs> days from right now, right? Alex, favorite burger also, by the way, oh, yeah. while we're here. Are you an In-N-Out guy? You ever been to the Ooh. West Coast for In-N-Out? I have been to In-N-Out. I've been to Five Guys. I've been to Shake Shack. Man, that's tough. I mean, it, it's hard to beat a good Shake Shack burger. I really do like their burgers quite a bit. I um, five Five Guys is good, but I also feel like they're just so much. They're so greasy. I haven't had In-N-Out probably in like six years, so it's it's been a while since I've tasted one of those. But I did enjoy it when I had it. But uh, I guess I'll go Shake Shack. That's that's the best way to go yeah. for this one. Different price point though. This is the same. We're back. We're, we're coming full circle here on this the, the burger debate. Hey, Alex, uh, we'll all have a big old sack of greasy burgers next week when the Pacers draft a future Hall of Famer at seven. Thanks for your time. Yeah, sounds good, man. Thank you. I'll have a good one. Thanks, Alex. Uh, it's Alex Golden. Yeah, of course. Like, I mean, it's again, it's the steakhouse reference of where's your best cut of meat going to come from? Of course, it's going to be Shake Shack. Yeah, I, mean, I spent ninety dollars there for a family of four one time. <laughs> ninety, maybe it's like maybe it's seventy eight or eighty something. Or yeah, my mother in law had just taken her grandkids, and yeah, it was like seventy seventy five dollars. It's it's a, it's wait, a okay, tough yeah, go. Sure. What do you want to say about that? Go on, get in here. What do you want to say about the? Um, you didn't even know that's how much I spent on your birthday. Oh, you had a birthday party there once, and that must have cost me like eighty bucks yeah, worth well, of kids eating the, fries the and burgers. Ninety dollars. Also, it was the day Gwen got her teeth pulled out. So you know, I think, I think we ate a little more than we should have. Oh, that's right. We were trying to, yeah, we were trying to make your sister feel better. Yeah, thanks for that. Thanks for that reminder of that one. Still, still costs the same on the credit card. <laughs> I was, I mean, hey, it makes it feel a little special occasion y type yeah, deal. Special yeah, special occasion. Anytime someone gets teeth pulled, we're going to go up to Shake Shack and I'm going to spend $20 per burger on an absolutely delicious burger. Um, I don't know where I feel the most excitement pull towards next Thursday and this draft for the Pacers, Jimmy. Like, I. All of the excitement about getting this pick, not winning the lottery. So once you're resigned to the fact you're not going to get Brandon Miller, you're not going to get Victor Weminyama, like all of that, it was like, okay, good. They're going to get someone that fits. They're going to get someone that helps. And hopefully they get the right guy who helps the most and fits the most out of this corral of fours that all kind of do the same thing. So I don't really know what gives me the... I'm going to watch with great anticipation because I want to know who that is, but I'm not necessarily sure if we've now set ourselves up for, oh, I mean, I hope the draft falls perfectly to right here because I think that there are a number of ways that that draft falls where it's like, okay, yeah, they're, they're fine here or there or there. I want a player taken, and this is the most basic answer you could probably have on the matter, but I want a player taken. I don't need it to be immediately rah-rah out of the gate, but I need, as I'm diving through, and fans going to do this too, highlights, scouting reports left and right once the selection is made. I want to feel confident that it is a piece that, okay, it makes sense with what Rick Carlisle wants to do with this team. It helps them in some capacity in terms of it's a star player down the line, but also it's somebody that's not going to be a liability on defense because that's a clear area for them. 
And honestly, because of the Victor Wembanyama hype that was there and where the Pacers are at seven, I don't want to make it seem like I'm not interested in who they take. I'm very interested in it, but I'm more fascinated by what happens with this treasure trove of other first round picks the Pacers have. Because yes, it makes total sense that they would say publicly, we're probably not going to be taking all these selections. Look at our roster. Look at where it is. But until the trades happen, which by the way, and we had Scott Agnes on the other day and he mentioned the same thing. I agree. I don't think trades of that variety are going to happen until the day before the draft or draft night. But that's what I'm more built up with anticipation is, are they actually going to trade those picks or is it going to wind up making majority of the selections? There's not a big draft night trade. And instead it's like, oh, we liked this class. We want to have variety. And yeah, people are going to get cut, but that's where we understand things are happening. I don't think that's what's going to happen. I think they're going to make the trades. But that is the elephant in the room that's keeping me waiting on the edge of my seat to see what when the other shoe is going to drop. I think they just find a way to trade all four picks in such a way that gets them Jalen Hood, Shafito, and Trace Jackson Davis. You just roll it back. You just you just sell tickets, baby. You just sell calendars, baby. No, that's not going to happen. As a, as a proud alum, someone I'm driving to say that's a great idea. Somebody driving out there is like, yes, that's the exact thing we're supposed to do. As a proud alum, I'm obligated to say it's a great idea, and they they should they should do that and make it the. Uh, Indiana Hoosiers in the NBA, effectively. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, all, all jokes aside, that is, I mean, uh, don't you feel that same pull in that, like, I, I very much care about what they do at seven, but there's one signature aspect to Kevin Pritchard's time with Indiana, and it is he is so great at orchestrating trades and finding high value Something's when it matters most. And I can't wait for what that is. And if we walk away you know, like a like a the air being let out of a balloon by the time the draft's over next Thursday, that would almost disappoint me more than my favorite player not getting taken at seven. What's gonna happen is like they're gonna find a way to trade with like Detroit. Like they're gonna go they're gonna value a Cam Whitmore more than Detroit even does and give them one extra resource or one extra draft pick. That's going to be the trade, right? They're going to move a spot or two. They're going to figure out something with Detroit or Orlando who are in the two spots right before them, probably not going all the way up to Houston at four. But that's the trade, right? The trade is that this was our guy, and we value this guy the most. He has to be able to defend. He has to be able to shoot and Again, they're too good at roster construction and they're too good at making moves to not address at this high a pick where you can have your say in the most talented impact players coming out of college and prep landscape and everything. They're going to have that person. Like That's why when, when I was here last week and there was a little bit of, there was some mock draft that had Anthony Black. It was like, that makes zero sense to me. Just makes zero sense. I understand if everybody, then, that, then you trade back. Like it just would make zero sense to take that guy and have a ball first, have to have it in my hand when you have Tyrese Halliburton on this roster, and then they would trade back because that would be the logical thing to do. I would think if you're going to see a move, Jimmy, it's going to be they figure out a way to just broker a move up one or two spots because they are completely in love with somebody of the Whitmore, Walker, Hendricks, maybe one of the Thompsons, although I feel like they're both a little bit undersized for the position that you are probably drafting in need for. But I'm in the, it's going to be Walker Hendricks or Whitmore camp. But what if 
they're like, this guy is A and the other two are B's. And we can find, we don't think that Detroit or Orlando views that player as favorably, but we're not taking any chances. We're going to move up a pick or two and we're going to throw in maybe even both the first. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. I feel like that's the most likely trade scenario for the Pacers, other than they pick at seven and they figure out a way to move the later picks. But you know, if there's movement in the top ten, it's a very subtle one or two spots for the Pacers. Here's my off the board move because I was looking through trying to figure out okay, where's their value? Where's their player that's young enough to where they their best years are still in front of them, but it's not too much of a head case that you'd be worried about necessarily bringing him in here or doesn't have any baggage around him and we already mentioned one Indiana Hoosier two Indiana Hoosiers in Trace Jackson Davis and Jalen Hoodgefino why not throw one more out there in a name that's been constantly begged for by Pacers fans and constantly rumored to have interest the Pacers do in this particular player and that's OG Ananobi I understand that it is a contract year for him in 2024-2025 yeah actually he's a player option so he could decline that and then if he does decline that then this throws no correction. My fault. I'm getting my years wrong. He's under contract this year as a player option in 2024-2025. I love him in everything that he does on the basketball court. I like him, whether it's offensively, defensively. He fills, in my mind, an obvious need for what the Pacers want to do. He's only 25 years old. I'm not saying necessarily move seven, which perhaps that's what it would take. But if you're able to package something else along with the first-round picks that you have to go get him... I would not be mad about it in any way, shape, or form. You have to remember, they offered that pick. The Pacers offered right. all three first-round picks for OG at the trade deadline, right. and Toronto said no. Right. And again, I'm not saying Before that, we knew what the pick was going to be, before we knew how high seven was going to be. Fair, but, and that's, that's an important point, too. So. I, I would argue that it could have... Things change in general. Toronto... They can look at OG and Anobi all they want, and we can talk about how unique it is that different teams in different cities have won the NBA title the last five or six years, Toronto included. They are in just as confusing of a spot as the Pacers are outside of the fact they were a postseason team last year, obviously a part of the play-in, though. I don't know what the cost would be. I don't even know if Toronto's willing to move him to Eddie's point, but I'm just thinking in the bag of tricks of what could Kevin Pritchard cook up, that would be a move that would be like, wow, that's that's a he got him again. Kevin Pritchard's dealing once again yeah. in the trade market if he's to bring in somebody like OG Ananobi. There are seven teams, and I'm looking at Spotrack, but there are seven teams that have practical cap space going into next year. And then there's a variety of teams that are over the cap. Obviously, some of those don't have penalties. Others do. And that's your real question is, who on that list now the Raptors are kind of right in the bubble the Raptors aren't in a crunch financially speaking but they're more and it's just sort of a what do we want to do with this roster type of standpoint but you know there are some desperate teams we talked about the Bradley Beal situation with Washington they are so far over the cap it's it's incredible for as bad as they are but Dallas is Dallas going to end up trying to make a play are they going to go super team in this offseason is there something on that roster that is enticing to you to move because the picks then become valuable if Kyrie's really trying to create some sort of super team scenario like those are the, the little questions that I probably need a commercial break to dive into to see if there's anything there we're going to do that because we never did our supposed fake day worth of NBA mock oh, trades trade Let's play around a little yes. with that and also um, the ever growing energy drink War I was going to ask that is in my house. Yep. It is on the table right here. We're going to talk about. It. We're going to talk about this. It's getting a little crazy. Man, nearing the end of the show. 
Everybody's running out of the studio. Apparently, there's free ice cream around here somewhere. So if this segment sounds a little unprofessional, it's because everybody's trying to eat their ice cream before the homemade it taste melts. of Bluebell, where good folks gather around. Wow, I only know that because they're an ad reader. There, there's not. They're not sponsored, but they should be. They're pretty good. You aren't old enough to know what ice cream will eventually do to your body. Oh my gosh. Got the inner tube on from a summer's worth of ice cream eating already. Um, by the way, so bad cap space NBA teams. We were talking about that before the break. I mean, a lot of the big name teams that are out there, I mean, you got to spend money to make money. You know, the Warriors are in such an awful cap sort of situation. They're paying penalties. I mean, even the Nuggets, fresh off their title, it's not as if, you know, they're cheap by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, you got Jokic, which is a 47 million dollar cap hole. Jamal Murray's over 30 million. Michael Porter Jr. is making over 30 million. Aaron Gordon. I mean, it's you got to spend money and get it right in those top sort of five and then fill the rest of your roster out. That's the key part and why I'm not worried about Denver necessarily because I was thinking to myself, man, is this like writing on the wall? They have to get it done this year. Not necessarily because the shortest team control player is Jamal Murray. I think he still has two years left on his deal. Yeah. Outside of that, like you said, Jokic is locked up. Uh, Michael Porter Jr. is locked up. They have just the entire roster and Jokic locked up of big key players that you really need. You're going to lose players in the margins, right? Bruce Brown's going to get paid this year. He's going to opt out and make a heavy sum of money, you would think, at another destination. But that's the spot you want to be in. It's the perfect spot you want to be in as a team. I like it more to like the Warriors than the Miami Heat or the Lakers with LeBron where... Like, yes, you have two pieces set in stone, but that's not just starters. That's high-level contributors that Denver has locked up to a point why they're the betting favorite going into the offseason. So it's like if you're Dallas, right, and you want to move some money this offseason, I mean, there's just no one attractive. That's the thing about this is that it's not just free agents in the NBA. It's Even if it's an undesirable contract or a team that wants to make a little money go away so that they can pursue something that they think is better, it has to be a perfect fit. And again, the only bodies that are available out there for the Pacers are those whose contracts have enough money on them. But then it's, it's going to ask you a question of how you're keeping your books for the Pacers about what does this mean when you're projecting forward a Halliburton extension and a number of these other questions that come up with it. So if like, hey, you call up Dallas, you're like, hey, we've got some of these things. We can help take some of this salary off of your hands. Like, you don't want Tim Hardaway Jr.'s $18 million coming back. You don't want Davis Burton's $17 million coming back. Like Max Kleber. I don't even know. I, I couldn't even tell you how these guys played this past season. Like it's not a name that's like moving me into excitement as you're trying to help Dallas figure out a way to have a Luca Kyrie $90 million backcourt as they entice maybe another big name free agent to come and make $40 million and play on the front line. Yeah, I mean, you have to look within the middle of the cap. Like, if you go to the bottom half, like towards the teams that are really cap strung, you start to really lose where is the value of not just me relieving you of cap stress, but where is the value that it actually benefits me? Like, Portland doesn't really do that for me. I mean, I guess you could have a conversation about Anthony Simmons if that was something they were actually willing to move, but like, that's doesn't really move the needle for me necessarily. Dallas, you outlined it. Milwaukee doesn't have that. Then you go towards the middle of the pack. I mean, what's a team that's in limbo? Like the Bulls are the Bulls in limbo. The Nets are in limbo. Like, what do these teams want to be? I think that's the, 
you bring the up a great point. Wizards are clearly in it. I mean, yeah, you bring up a great point. Like what? Well, the Wizards are, are are terrible. The Wizards stink, and they know they have to get rid of money and kind of figure out a way to get better. But if they think they're like Beal wants out, and he holds all the cards in the no trade clause, but there was still a time where even last year. Washington felt like they were building something. Now, granted, and I don't know if I necessarily agreed with it or not, but they did let Tommy Shepard go and, and change front office work within that department of what their philosophy is going to be as an organization moving forward. But like the Wizards are in a spot where they're bad enough to we know what they are. The Bulls are probably the better example of they think they're good. They were on the precipice of potentially beating Miami in the play-in. Yep. Like, there, there's a conversation we have there, but are the Bulls a legitimate contender right now? No, but they're good enough to be in that range. And that's the spot that Pacers, for too long, not this stretch of six, seven years, but for too long throughout my life, that's where they've been. They've had windows of where they're high-level contenders, but there's always someone stiff-arming them away, or they're like the Bulls, where they're just good enough to be in the conversation of a five or six seed, but you know deep down in your heart that they're not going anywhere. Yeah, That's not where they are right now, thankfully, but that's where you can very easily be with a misstep here or two. I'm just floating through all these rosters, and it's just like, I, and this is what's so weird. I was listening to the guys this morning talk about this, and the Pacers have, I think, the 27th like highest odds to win the NBA Finals coming up this year. I mean, their odds are almost kind of in lockstep whether they finished last season, but then you think about the improvement of other teams and not what they're doing, and it is kind of a, a reality check to be like, oh, wow. Like, Vegas gives this franchise no chance. I'm not saying they're going to win an NBA title next year, but you'd think they'd at least feel better about them than some other franchises that were out there. And that kind of drives home the point of like what you truly have versus what you're projecting you could have moving forward in the future. But it, it's... It's interesting to me because it's like I look through some of these rosters or some of these teams and I go, well, is that really the guy that makes the difference for you? Like, no, like you need your current talent to develop on the trajectory that they are developing. While at the same point in time, you need to go acquire somebody who you think is going to be developing on that same point to give yourself a chance to have superstars. Like the NBA champion developed a 41st overall pick and then got it right in the lottery with your second to have a Batman and Robin superstar tandem to get it done. I don't know if there is a player on a middling NBA franchise making $15 million this year they're going to flip two first-round draft picks for, and then that player is suddenly going to be either Batman or Robin to this team becoming a perennial playoff contender and an NBA title threat. Like I just... You, you need you need a veteran piece, and that's where I think I'm probably shopping in not the bargain section. I'm kind of shopping in the the high rent district when I'm looking at some of these teams. It's going to be no, you're going to end up moving the 28th pick for a guy at the end of his rookie deal, like a, almost like a knee Smith type of player that's got maybe one more year worth of control, but you'd rather have the four years of experience than another fresh body, 19 year old coming out of college. And then, you know, you're not tied to that player beyond next year. If it doesn't work out, that to me feels like the more likely move than we're going to get somebody in here, like a OJ Anunoby, and you're going to expect to try and assign him to another extension and make him part of like your featured franchise as a piece moving forward. But what I would hope, regardless if it was Ananobi or if it was a player that you outlined, Ananobi, you'd have an additional year of control to an extent. Again, he has that player option, and you would assume 
that he would opt out next season and try to get a bigger deal elsewhere. That's the more natural move for somebody around his age. He's 25 years old as it stands. But my goal, if I'm playing the trade market, and you were able to do it with, well, you did it for a little bit with Victor Oladipo, didn't pan out the way you wanted it to. We're not going to dive down that rabbit hole. But it worked successfully with Sabonis, which is that I don't want this to just be a look of get the most out of you can with one year from one guy. You're not going to find the high value in free agency, but if you get the player here, get them in the building and acquire them as they're on an expiring deal or on a two-year deal in that 25 to 27-year-old range, I want to be able to sell Indiana to them as we're building something special here that they'll re-sign in a way that they likely would not sign up for right away as a free agent. But once they're in the building and see what's being built... You're, it's right. You're, it's like money, you're getting a proposal to sell to somebody talks, before man. anybody else. I've become so cynical covering golf. It's like they're going to go where the money is. So I, I don't know how many players are out there. They're going to be like, oh yeah, I love what you're building here. Let me stay around here and lessen my market value in order to make it happen because you proved it to them. In this world, I'm not saying money's the issue. I'm saying the idea is that money. You know this better than anybody. Money is not the issue with people players wanting to play in this city it is there's money elsewhere yes with higher curb appeal that attracts you Correct. more as it as an individual at times so i'm not going at it from that standpoint i agree with you money is going to talk but i'm saying the pacers would have that money armed with to sign said extension to whatever hypothetical player you want to throw out there the key for a trade to me is not just a a one-year guy it is a guy that might have one year left on his contract that's in his late 20s, mid 20s that you're able to sell and extend as being a yeah, part of this I, core. I, I Let me give you a player then that fits that bill. Kyle Kuzma. <laughs> look, look, I love I love Kuz, but there are nights where he's just as head scratching as any other player in the NBA. Like I you like, think you think his fashion's going to fly here in That's India? not even I don't even care about that, but yeah, you're right. <laughs> it's a good point. those jackets work. I mean, he was on a Washington Wizards team where he was asked to be the second guy. I don't even mean the Wizards stuff. I just mean it, it didn't work in L.A. because he wanted a bigger role and they needed to move things to make Russell Westbrook happen. I don't, I'm not even judging him on the Washington stuff. Cause that's a bad team to begin with. Just what I saw when he was on a contender, albeit very early in his career, wasn't enough to where... I don't know what his contract is, Eddie. What's his... Is he, is he about to be on expiry? Yeah, he's on a, he's this final year, $13 million. I wouldn't say no to it. I'm just saying from what I saw from him out in L.A. and in stretches in Washington, that doesn't fit the mold of the guy I would want to sign and keep here long term. Just, just for me, I'm not saying it wouldn't be good for a one-year sample size like what's Will talking about, but I don't know that I want Kyle Kuzma being a piece of my championship roster that Can I'm we building. Get Jan Mahimi back? Is he, <laughs> is, is he still available? Can we bring him back? Uh, speaking of overhyped, you've been pointing at this, and for the people on YouTube, let me let me bring it up here. So, yeah, my 12-year-old son's in here. Um, he's brought in the the energy drink Prime today. Have you heard about the Prime? Is this the uh, it's the Jake Paul Jake or Logan Paul. Paul. Is it Jake or Logan Paul? Which which Paul is it, Hudson? It's um pretty sure it's uh Jake Paul. It's Jake Paul's drink. I've heard of it, yes. We this is like Logan. It's Logan Balls. Logan and uh, Checkmate. KSI. Check me. I thought KSI was a vault. I just didn't Yeah, well me. there's a KSI apparently fancy one. We <laughs> we go to stores like you would have gone to get baseball cards back. Did you collect baseball cards when you were a kid, or is it too far past you? A little bit. I have, I have a collection. What did you collect when you were, like, what was the cool thing to collect amongst your friends when you were middle school, high school? Yeah, it was probably, like, yeah, trading, trading cards, cards and, and stuff, respect. right? Yeah. These kids are, like, we're spending, how much does that bottle of Prime cost right there? 
How many Shake Shack burgers was it? Yeah, exactly. How many Shake? It was two dollars. Is it worth two dollars? Oh, it's not bad. I thought we thought it was like five or seven, like with with how much overhyped it is at times. The lime I think is the it's best. The two dollars. But this is the, my favorite thing about it. Like, which tastes better, that or Gatorade? I think Gatorade's better for hide. Eh, no, I think Gatorade tastes somewhat better. But this is the only thing you want me to flavor. buy. This, this is the only thing. More flavor. More flavor. Than Gatorade. Gatorade's kind of like has like a hint of flavor. This but is, but this is all you want me to buy, and why is that? Because it's because it's popular. Mm. Can you imagine a pop like a sports drink? When I was a kid, we had a thing called All Sport. It tasted like salt water. It literally was like a salt water, but it was like, hey man, this is gonna hydrate you. This is gonna be really good for you, and you just drank it because it was like hyd- hydrating and stuff. Now it's literally we got social media moguls marketing new stuff. I've read the stuff. I mean, there's a lot of good stuff in it. I mean, it's not like it's toilet water that's been dyed blue or anything I had like that. preferences on hydration drinks as a kid. Like, it was always Gatorade. Like, I drink Powerade, but I never really wanted You gotta watch it. that now. Gatorade's got the caffeinated version. You gotta oh be my, careful on that. My, my wife <laughs> nearly dropped her phone. I don't know how many uh, milligrams of caffeine are in that <laughs> thing, but I was baffled. I was like, I was reading the other day, because I drink a lot of Coke Zero, like, oh, how much caffeine's really in this? Oh, it's not that bad. It's like 34 milligrams. Then you look at the, the caffeinated energy drink from Gatorade, it's like 300. Yeah. There's a lot going on. <laughs> A lot of things out there. I don't know if Prime's going to go get into the caffeinated business or not, but it's been. Will you be in the caffeinated? Will the Haskett House be in the caffeinated business? No, I don't drink caffeine, so I didn't mean you. We we try and stay out of it. We don't. We try not to drink a whole lot of caffeine. But I love my Coke. You love. You do love Coke from time to time. You love the Prime too. All righty. Speaking of Prime, Prime picks coming up next. We'll make some money in the final segment. Final time here on the Midday Show, 93.5-1075, The Fan with Jimmy Cook. I'm Will Haskett. Thanks for tolerating us on your Wednesday. Um, I don't know what we learned today. We learned that this is the time. We are in the doldrums of summer, and it is what it is for all these teams. We'll have... We learned about a ton of tears on burgers. We did. We talked a lot about burgers, Uh, maybe more so than... Anything else that we talked about, or at least established something on today's show? It does make me want to have a cheeseburger. Same. So I'm looking maybe maybe for that cheeseburgers tonight for dinner. Dad's on dinner tonight. Mom's at a work event all night long. So Wahlburger is also a solid burger, by the way. Um, I've never it, been it's there. It's a sit down though. It's not a drive through, so it's a whole. Whataburger. Other. I've been to a Whataburger in Texas a lot. It's fine. That's the I mean, one I haven't had that I need to have. The one, the one that always brings, and I don't even know if you can classify this as a food, but the White Castle Burger is once a year. I, I contend that once a year you get the crave, and you're like, "I'm going to do this," and then you got to have like eight of them because they're so small. There's a lineage in my family that would disgust you. I'm not a part of it. I like White Castle, but like we're talking like pounding crave cases left and right in the age that you should not be pounding sure. crave cases at. Yeah, I can. I've been known to pound a crave case once a year. Typically, when I'm driving home from somewhere, it's a nice little, just put it next to you as you're rolling down the highway, and every 10 minutes, you just kind of slide one of those sliders right on in, and just keep but moving. the next day is always a problem, and then you realize, you know what? I'm not going to do that again, and then a year goes by, and then sure enough. You understand the cost of business. It is what it is. It is, just like gambling. Let's make some picks. The Jay Cook Plays of the Day. This is me, all right? I'm not a f- athlete. This is my f- this is how I win. Today's plays of the day, all baseball. First, we'll start with run line wagers. Give me 
I don't care about the win streak. I don't care. I'm also doing it partly to spite Eddie because it's going to work out and it's going to pan out day over day. Lay the one and a half on the Tampa Bay Rays tonight as they are in Oakland against the suddenly red hot athletics. Five in a row, right? Isn't it seven now? Seven in a row. Uh, wow. They had the reverse boycott last night where fans came and supported the team that was wore t-shirts to protest the owners. Electric. It was awesome. It was fantastic. I, I think that might have been a one-time deal, but if it happens more often uh, through this stretch of just debauchery that is the ownership out there in Oakland, I am all here for it. Uh, also going to lay one and a half on the Los Angeles Dodgers as they host the Chicago White Sox. Moneyline wagers give me the New York Yankees straight up over the New York Mets. Garrett Cole versus Justin Verlander tonight. And this one is to prove Eddie wrong as well, but also I was right yesterday on it, so we'll keep the train going. Give me the Cincinnati Reds today as they look for a sweep over the Kansas City Royals. Two and three yesterday, four and six on the week. Eddie, you got anything? I will say it's a lot easier to bet on the Reds when they're facing the worst team in baseball. Well, it's so nice. I'll give you that credit. Nice. You went with them on the money line? Is that what you said? Well, minus 110. Okay. Interesting. Ugh. I mean, not here nor there. Uh, I don't really like the pitch matchup with that one. I am going to go with the Houston Astros minus one and a half on the run line. Framber Valdez has been one of the better pitchers in the MLB. Uh, Josiah Gray has a really high whip, uh, walks hits per innings pitch, but he doesn't really translate over into the ERA. I like the Houston Astros offense to get to him today. Uh, and I would go with the first five in Tampa, but the run line is minus one and a half. So I am not touching it there. So I'm one and one this week. Those are my only two plays. Irresponsible parenting. Hudson, turn your mic on. You got any games you want to pick for us? Right into, the, into the microphone, please. No, you don't know, no? He's still researching over there. Uh, wind will be blowing in at Wrigley tonight. This is the only baseball that I care about. Uh, Drew Smiley hasn't had a couple of good starts lately. Even though the Cubs are favored on the money line, I'll lay one and a half and take the Cubs tonight with the weather helping Drew Smiley keep the ball in the ballpark so I can get that at plus 140, land one and a half for the Cubs to get it done. And then you guys need my U.S. Open picks before yes, I get please, out of here. Please, um, I am going to stick with it, even though he won two weeks ago. I think he's perfectly built for U.S. Opens. My pick is Victor Hovland. You can get him at 18-1 to 1 on DraftKings. I like Hovland as my favorite going into the week. I'm big on Siwoo Kim. I saw him as long as 90-1. to 1. He's 70-1 to 1 on DraftKings. I don't think he's going to win, but you can get plus 550 on a top 10. I'm assuming his top 20 then is probably going to be about plus 250 or maybe even plus 300. Further on down the list, Denny McCarthy, 130 to 1 to win, but you can get plus 850 in a top 10. I think that the short game and everything for Denny McCarthy really works. And Eric Cole, I'm not going to put an outright on him to win, but you can get plus money on him all the way up to a top 40. He's been playing really well, a good scrambler of the golf ball. So Eric Cole is a big long shot there if you're looking for plus money on a top 30 or top 40 at the U.S. Open this week. Any research? Have you done any research? You like a game tonight? What are we, what are um, we thinking? Well, I've always been a Cubs fan, so probably I, I'm rooting for the Cubs against them. Against the Pirates? Pirates? All right, so we've got that bet locked in. Okay, what was anybody else you liked? Um, sure. So, um, Let's go with that one. Not the most even game. Looked like the Guardians and the Padres. Okay. I want the Padres to win. Taking the game. Padres tonight. Do you want to lay some runs, or do you just want to pick them straight up to win? Uh, Win. Straight up win. So it's minus 155 on the money line. Waka on the mound tonight for the Padres at home against the Guardians. All right. Haskett family is locked in there. I like it. I'm mad that you can't bet. I can't find it. Maybe it's on there, but I'm looking through make, miss the cut. I would have thought for certain Phil Mickelson would be on there, but I'm just either missing him or can't find him. Uh, Phil Mickelson to miss the cut would get, let's see, where are we here? He is not listed 
on DraftKings. So he's not one of the golfers that you can choose from, it looks okay, like, so I'm here not crazy. in that one. So it looks like they're only offering right now guys at minus money um, to miss the cut. So I don't know. Oh, wait. No, that's to make the cut, to miss the cut. Um, yeah, I still don't see him on here. Plus 550 is Scotty Scheffler. He's the longest odds in terms of... I'm not going to do that. I'm just saying it's out there, right? There's some, but it's not a ton of golfers. Rory McIlroy hasn't showed up in big events this year. He's plus 330 to miss the cut at the U.S. Open. I'm not saying it's going to hit, but I'm saying if there's anybody in the top that is at super crazy numbers to make that happen, it might be Rory, who's had disappointments so far this year at the Players' Championship and at the Masters. The field is minus 280. The big guns, Scheffler, Rahm, Kepka, and Rory, plus 200. Which would you side with? Definitely the field on that one. I think there's some other names that could get it done. Hey, enjoy the rest of your Wednesday. John is in next for Jimmy and Eddie. I'm Will. Have a great day.